Alrighty, well welcome uh, everyone to uh, the first impromptu Logical Belief Ministries uh, Google Hangout. Uh, this was off the cuff, a quick, uh, a quickly planned event. Uh, Bible Thumping Wingnut, which usually broadcasts on Sunday night, um, where I join in from occasion, uh, did not have a broadcast tonight. So some of us that uh, are regulars there, and I decided to just start another hangout over here. So. Uh, that's what we are starting off with. Uh, I've got um, uh, Larry and Vincent, uh, two regulars over at uh, the Bible Thumping Wingnut. Uh, they've joined in, and uh, for anyone else out there, if you want to join in, uh, feel free. I'm going to go ahead and add. Um, I'm going to go ahead and add Larry and Vincent to the broadcast. Let's see here. Are you guys already in the broadcast? Because I don't see the option to remove you. I'm hearing you. I can talk, so. Okay. Looks like I didn't have... Okay, I did not... Uh... Let me actually make that change. I want to make a change here. That that way people don't just uh, join in automatically. There is a setting for that. i got to find that. Okay, there we go. Alrighty, are both of you guys? Uh, um, let's uh, just kind of go around. Vincent, uh, I know that you're a Christian also. So, uh, where where are you from? I'm uh, from Biloxi, Mississippi. Okay. I am a, a Reformed Baptist. So. You're a Reformed Baptist. Okay. Well, welcome to the club. <laughs> what about you, uh, Larry? Are you uh, what? Uh, what's your flavor? <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm uh, also a Reformed Baptist. I actually uh, attend a. Uh, a dispensational Baptist church, but uh, we get along well. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, uh, so you would probably fall down the line of uh, the MacArthurite um, flavor of uh, Reformed? Yeah, that would be, um, I, I'm, the church I attend would be would be right alongside, you know, right along with the MacArthur. Yeah. I do, I do uh, um, lean more towards 1689. Yeah, like, covenantal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, that's where I lean to. I would I would call myself baptismic covenant uh, covenant theology. I'm not not dispensational, but I I do have a lot of appreciation though for for MacArthur and mm -hmm. his ministry. I I tremendously appreciative of him. In fact, he is one of the uh, one of the people that uh, really helped. Uh, once I became Reformed, he was one of those that really helped me refine my understanding of Reformed theology and just biblical exegesis and things like that. Uh, he's he's really one of the uh, the few men out there that are just willing to take a stand on what Scripture says and uh, and not really compromise. One right. of the few, especially in such a public light. Yeah, Vincent, you mentioned you were in Biloxi, did you say? Yeah, I am. Actually, right before the broadcast, we were talking about uh, I'd spent some time in the military, and I actually uh, did my tech school at Keesler Air Force Base. Oh, yeah. No Keesler will. Yeah. Had a lot of friends come and go through the years because of Keesler. Yeah. Right. So how long were you here? I mean, you were here for a little while? Yeah, it was uh, about three months, three or four months I was there. I forget how long the, the schooling was, but... Yeah, it's funny because I grew up in in, uh, in North Dakota, and but probably the coldest I've ever been was in 
in Biloxi. It was like before the sun was up and just all that moisture and the wind was cutting through, and now it's free to gold. We have 100% humidity most of the time, so yep. you're not used to it. <laughs> it gets you in the heat and the cold. Yeah, I didn't expect that in the cold. I thought those took me by surprise. Yeah, there's a there's a big difference between humidity when you got or cold when you got high humidity and dry. Yeah, big difference. There's a major bite to it. You don't realize that until you experience both. I'm originally from northern Indiana, so uh, up close to Michigan, so okay. I've ran into it. So um. So uh. I'm going to post a Hangout link, maybe I'll get some other people in. Let me uh, check here. So did any of you guys catch, uh, Vincent, did you, uh, did you catch the uh, discussion that uh, we had yesterday um, where I, I had a kind of an impromptu, uh, I wasn't really planning on it, but um, uh, an impromptu discussion with uh, a bunch of atheists and uh, some Christians. I did not. We were doing our Council of Google Plus yesterday, so we have a, we host a weekly one. We call it the Council of Google Plus. <laughs> the Council of Google Plus. Yeah, we, we, we formed our own Council of Reformed Theologians, discussed <laughs> issues weekly. We had Matt Slick on one time. He, we, he's part of it occasionally if he's free. So. Do you guys uh, publish it as a podcast, or yeah, do you guys just have it? Uh, what's the name? Council it's of Google Plus. Council and it's uh it's got a channel. It's got a Most channel. But I don't know if you know the guy Calvinist Klein. He he hosted most of the time. Council of Google Plus. Oh okay, there we go. Okay, so it's mostly on. Is it on his channel? Is that where they're? Most of the time, I think you know, we try to keep it there. Um, okay. Yes, yeah, some of them are. I mean, sometimes we go six, seven hours, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how long have you guys been? Yesterday we had a, a female artist that she puts out some YouTube uh, videos and all. She's an actual Calvinist artist, which oh, okay. is rare. For fe <laughs> it's rare to find a female with good, you know, with her, good her, her music is solid, you know, uh, yeah. biblically. So we interviewed her for the first part. So how long have uh, both of you guys been uh, Reformed, been Calvinists? I'm going to say about five, six years now. Okay. How about you, Larry? I came from a, a Pentecostal background, so yeah, it was a it was a process. Yeah. How yeah, I would you? say about um, about four years. I kind of I was saved in uh, 1995, and I'd say kind of a Kind of was in a big discernment uh, fog for for many years, um, so I just didn't, attended churches that really didn't make any distinctions and uh, kind of suffered accordingly. Yeah, yeah. I come from a. Uh, have you any of you guys ever encountered uh, Mennonites? Conservative Mennonites. Yeah, I have. Okay, that is my background and. Uh, my my background is particularly hostile towards Calvinism. Um, conservative Mennonites tend to be pretty hostile towards Calvinism, and so I, I remember back when I was uh, 
I was probably 18 at the time. I was, it was, I was president of our youth group uh, at at uh, the Mennonite Church, and I, uh, so sometimes I would teach Wednesday night Bible study for the youth. And I remember one time going through Romans chapter five, and just preaching on it, and uh, all preaching on it, mainly just teaching on it. But uh, I, w- I was going through the text, and you know, obviously, well, I, w- I wasn't a Christian at the time, so I I was narsegeting the text, <laughs> and and I was uh, explaining to everybody that you know this text is to demonstrate to us and show to us how you know uh, our actions have consequences for those who come after us. Well, if that's all you get out of that text, uh, there's a problem. But uh, uh, I I made some comments in there about, you know, because of Adam's fall, you know, we all have a, a sin nature, and that is a consequence of that. Because that's what the text really says. And I, I didn't really have any theological training or anything like that. It's just I was just reading the text. And I got pulled aside by our um, youth sponsors afterwards. And uh, they proceeded to inform me that that uh, I was pushing the boundaries with the way that I was talking about Romans five, and uh, that is that's Calvinism stuff. And that was the first time I'd ever even heard the word Calvinism. And uh, they're like, uh, you know, that's that's not true. You know, we're all born neutral, and uh, you know, we make decisions. You know, our depending on our decisions and, and the decisions that we make. You know, th- those are those are made from a neutral foundation. We can go, you know, one way or the other. We don't, you know, lean lean towards sin, which is really quite an absurd uh, statement. But uh, that that is what a lot of uh, Mennonites would hold to, and I, I would say that some of that is almost full blown Pelagianism. But uh, that's how I grew up, and so uh, I I had always heard Calvinism was a was a really bad thing. And uh, so that was when I when I first encountered it. That's you know that that's how I reacted to it. Was that that's that's bad. That's something I need to avoid. Yeah, it's pretty extreme Arminianism there. With if they believe you're just born neutral, with no uh, depraved nature at all. Typically, from most Arminians, you know, I've encountered it's like you know there is a sin nature, but it simply is not total depravity. Yeah. Well, I would actually call that. I wouldn't say that that's even Arminianism. That's full-blown Pelagianism. Yeah, Pelagianism. Yep. Um, uh, Arminians would hold to. Now, now, I, I don't want to paint all Mennonites. Uh, that was just, and even even in the church that I went to, there would be those that hold to a more orthodox view of a sin nature. Um, but those were just the sponsors, you know, that were part of the the youth group that I was a part of. But uh, there, yeah, there are there are plenty of Mennonites that would say yes, we do have a sin nature inherited from Adam. That there, you know, the fall does affect the human will at least to some degree, and they would hold to probably more of a traditional Arminian uh, position. One thing that they're very strong on in the Mennonite community is that they are very adamant that you can lose your salvation, yeah. and and right. any and any church that that teaches that you are actually secure in Christ. Is something that they they take as a serious serious error that should be avoided. They don't would, wouldn't even associate with a church that uh, would do that in most cases. Which uh, brings in an interesting. Believe in convenient grace. No, what's that? 
Provenient grace is that how they, is that the view they hold? Well, unfortunately, uh, many of the Mennonites are so uh, many of them on the conservative side are so un uneducated when it comes to uh, many of them will at best have a high school education. A uh, college education is usually frowned upon, so or seminary. Uh, so most of their ministers, bishops, and deacons are simply lay people in the congregation that were selected by a lot, and uh, then they become ministers. And then usually they start reading their Bible more aggressively. Uh, but up until that point, they don't have any sort of formal training. So if you would ask most Mennonites, do you believe in provenient grace, they would look at you cross-eyed. They wouldn't even know what you're talking about. I see. Well, actually, I mean, I, I don't doubt it. I mean, even in the general churches you usually go to, most people really wouldn't have a clue on half the terms we use. Uh, I, I never even heard Arminianism or Calvinism until, like I said, about six, seven years ago. Yeah. I grew, I grew up in a church, and we just that was not something ever talked about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a problem in, in modern evangelicalism is that is that sound doctrine is just not something that is is taught from the pulpit anymore. It's more uh, stories, uh, you know, how, how can you apply this uh, in your life to make your life better, uh, and it's more topical type preaching. Um, we, we used to go to a uh, Southern Baptist church, my wife and I. We first became Christians about five years ago. Uh, we went to a Southern Baptist church first, for about a year, and then we went to a Calvary Chapel, and uh, then we ended up at a Reformed Baptist where we're at today, and we're members there now. But uh, uh, it was a progression. But uh, that that Southern Baptist church that we went to um, would be on the line with, I would say, be on par with like a, a Perry Noble, uh, that type of a church. Um, so very very topical, very. Um, you know, not very deep at all. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder what the value is in in the Southern Baptist Convention because you know, you, you say a church is Southern Baptist, and that really means nothing. It doesn't mean anything anymore. Yeah, I mean Southern Baptist ranges from. I mean, there's there's good Southern Baptist churches out there. Yeah. Uh, but it's such a wide range. I mean, what a live hangout, Luke. Uh, welcome, David. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you could hear me. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I apologize. I, I added, I've never done this before. This is the first time. Okay, no problem. <laughs> sorry. Um, you know yeah. how to. Yeah, you can mute yourself at the top. You have a little button there. You could mute yourself if you want to. Okay. All right. Great. Thank you. Can you see me? Uh, no, we can't see you. But okay. Uh, you if, you, if you've got a webcam, you can hit the little gear icon on the top and select the appropriate video. Oh, I have an iPad. I'm not sure if that's possible. But... Should be able to. With the okay. IPad. I'll have to mess around with it, but I'm just listening. Um, yeah. I actually spent time in a, in a uh, Nazarene church, and so they do this whole sinless perfectionism, or the, uh, the uh, what do they call it? The uh, Wesleyan sinless perfectionism. Yeah, and they, they call it not complete uh, sanctification, or what do they, what do they call it? But... Yeah, and I, I look at that, you kind of look at that and Armenian in general, um, I think it's just, you know, 
trying to rationalize, you know, what some may call the chrono Christian, or as we would know as as false converts. You know, um, if you, you know, if you think people are saved who aren't, and then you see them, you know, quote unquote, fall away, you know, how are you going to jive that with your theology? You know, one is, one side is going to be okay. Um, you can lose your salvation, and that's what happened in that case. Or, or if you go the sinless perfectionism, you can say, okay, they're carnal Christians. They just haven't received that second gift of the Holy Spirit, where yeah. they have been released from, you know, original sin. Well, what I've noticed, yeah, what I've noticed is that when any, when any church denies the, really, when it comes to perseverance of the saints, you end up having all these theories, just a biblical theories out there, uh, a second blessing of spiritual perfection, mm -hmm. or this thing of you're losing your salvation constantly and you're getting it back, which is really my background. Uh, is that uh, that that would be kind of the you know the view they talk about in the Mennonite community? They talk about all the time about recommitting your life to the Lord. Yeah. And, and basically, what that simply means is that you know you were unsaved before you recommitted your life, but you know then you then you sometimes fall again, and then you're unsaved again, and then you recommit, and then you're back in the fold, and it's just uh, it's a treadmill. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, I think we were talking about Southern Baptist churches there. Yeah, you have uh, you have such a wide range of Southern Baptist churches. You have everything from, I, if I'm not mistaken, is Rick Warren's church still part of the Southern Baptist Convention, or did he drop out? I believe they are still. Yeah, I, I thought so. So you have everything from a Saddleback church by Rick Warren all the way down to uh, some Southern Baptist churches are even Reformed. Yeah, well, you look at J.D. Hall. You know, his church is a uh, Southern yeah. Baptist. Yeah. Yeah, and I would I would have no problem going to his church, but yeah. uh, I definitely I mean, wouldn't I, go to Saddleback. <laughs> that's probably a good example. Of Rick Warren and J.D. Hall. Yeah, the two extremes on each end. <laughs> yeah. So, David, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm David Call. I am 47. I came to the Lord, or He came to me about two years ago. Uh, I was a I was a believer in Christ, but I was not saved. In retrospect, I realize that now. Um, I joined a church, a non-denominational church that I have recently um, been struggling with over the last six months or so after the lights have come on um, through the Holy Spirit telling me to run basically um, as most of us when we came to salvation we were babes and immature Christians and not much on theology but through the grace of God I somehow stumbled on you know I was I was on fire for the Lord after I became saved or he saved me and I started searching for sermons and just I, I wanted to get more and I stumbled on Alistair Begg first mm. and then through him I, I really liked him and then you know how YouTube and such whenever you're looking at a sermon of one guy it'll link to another guy and I stumbled on the John MacArthur and quite frankly have listened to probably over 1,500 sermons from him, read about four or five of his books, 
and have also listened to R.C. Sproul, Ligonier Ministries, and probably the last six months, James White. So basically by default, I've sort of become reformed because I think it's what the Bible teaches, but I had no idea about any of this two years ago. Um, that, and that's and awesome. unfortunately, I joined a church, a large church, um, a very emotional experience when you first join, as you can imagine, the music, the lights, um, the glitter, the entertainment. I mean, they do they do talk about Jesus and the gospel and not a lot about sin and repentance, but they do mention that at times. But what I found out over the last two years going there, especially over the last year, is I would research certain things that he would say and research different speakers that he would bring in, especially on first Wednesday services. He brings in a guest speaker, uh, and they turned out to be from well, Hillsong Church, uh, Christine Kane came once, and I thought that was awfully strange that a female. So I researched her and got into some groups on Facebook, some reformed groups, and started just asking questions and found out that uh, this, this particular church, this pastor, he preaches pretty, I guess, a shallow but truthful gospel but he affiliates himself sort of in the background with some suspect people. Uh, yeah. Joel Olstein's church, he brings in guest speakers, Jonathan Gray, I believe his name is, Christine Kane, and then Life Church out of Oklahoma, he had him come in and talk. And uh, all these things just really as unsettled. I mean, I like the people there. I like the church. I believe the pastor truly believes in Christ. He's not a heretic per se, but... He's just misguided or something. I don't know. I just can't put my finger on it. But my children go there. I'm divorced. My ex-wife actually, by osmosis, started going there and loves it. She's not as discerning as me. <laughs> I believe she's regenerated, but she loves it there. The kids like it. I, over the last six months, just it kind of makes me sick to go there when I do go. But I've been going, nonetheless, to sort of correct the errors that I think are happening and be a shield for my children. But I've come to the point now that I'm going to leave and probably go to a – I'm looking around right now at Reformed churches, whether it be Presbyterian or Baptist. It doesn't matter to me because I'm not that big on eschatology, and that really isn't a huge matter to me. It's the gospel, the true gospel that matters to me the most. So I'm just grateful. I love talking about theology, uh, anything Christ, and talking with uh, brothers in Christ, because I don't get too much at the church that I go to now. The small groups that I have participated in is very shallow, and some of the stuff they use is very questionable. I always feel like the the legalist, you know, sitting in the corner going, this is wrong, this is wrong, even though that's I'm not a legalist. I just want truth, um, but I, I get the opinion or impression that that's how they view me at times, and I need to be more graceful and, and loving in my uh, reproof, I guess, if you were to say. So it's just a dilemma. It's a learning experience. I've been blessed. I mean, I'm so happy that I didn't fall into some heretical teaching that I was blinded by, but I've been sort of groomed by uh, MacArthur, Sproul, James White, Paul Washer, 
those guys have edified me, and I know that's not how you're supposed to do church over the internet, listening to sermons, but that's what I've been doing for the last two years, and I'm so grateful for technology. <laughs> yeah. Well, that you got to, yeah, I think uh, Vincent wrote common theme on the side. I completely agree with that. That that you're, I mean, you basically summarized um, um, my wife and I's story. Really? Ours, ours goes over uh, a period of time also, but, you know, we, we ended up where we're at today with a Reformed Baptist church. But I will tell you that, you know, right now with what you're feeling with uh, the fact that you, you're not you're not finding a lot of fellowship within the church that you're going to is is something that uh, I don't you you're not going to realize yet until you have it yeah that, that is tremendously important to actually have that more than just you know hanging out in a Google plus hangout with some fellow okay. uh, solid Christians is that is go to a church where you can be edified you can be encouraged and you're not constantly the last church that my wife and I were at we had the same thing where we were often looked at as yeah the we were looked at the league as the legalist we were looked right. at as those who always simply seem to have a problem with everything yes um and it was because uh, it wasn't that I was sitting there, you know, just uh, I was pushing my Calvinism down people's throat. I was no. dealing with issues that weren't even Calvinistically related. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I mean, basic just repentance major. and, and yeah. sin. I mean, acknowledge that church discipline, things like this, that they're never ever brought yeah. up ever. And one of the big ones at, at uh, the last church we were at was just taking the stand that Roman Catholicism doesn't have a biblical gospel. Oh, absolutely. is 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 one of those things that. Um, one of the reasons why uh, we were actually part of a Bible study group um, that it started off. I was the uh, I was the teacher for a Bible study group at our last church, uh, and then that group dissolved because the the host uh, family um, the husband actually got cancer and passed away, and um, so that had kind of dissolved. We didn't have a place to go. So another group of us just kind of got together and we started going through uh, a re actually a really good study by Gary Ezzo, uh, How to Raise Children God's Way, I think is the name of that study. Mm -hmm. And um, just a group of us. But uh, there was such egregious errors. One of the people in the group, you know, I had to stand up and say, for example, that uh, uh, f uh, that uh, homosexual marriage, you know, is... Uh, take take a stand that that is not biblical and and a Christian should not take a because one of the members was saying oh well I think it's not a you know I think it's a sin but I support their right to get married yeah uh, and so you know I had to take a stand on that and it was that and then the next thing ended up being Roman Catholicism and then it was one of the last Bible studies we were at. They found out that I was a Calvinist. <laughs> they they didn't they didn't know prior to. That. And uh, because, you know, it wasn't something that I'm just running around just saying, right. you know, I'm, I'm a Calvinist. So uh, he found out that I was a Calvinist because I, I had asked a question. I was We were sitting around a table, and I asked, uh, I just said, hey, I just got a question for everybody in the group. Uh, just curious, uh, you know, do you guys think, uh, you know, what do you think the atonement of Jesus Christ accomplished? Did, mm -hmm. it, make, did it make salvation possible uh, for for people if they met certain conditions? Um, or did Jesus actually save people from their sins? Or did he simply make it possible if man meets? And they all, to a, to a man, every single one of them said, well, he made it possible if we could be saved. Mm. 
And so I went to Colossians 2.14 and I just read it. And I said, you know, it says he canceled the record of debt that was against us, nailing it to the cross. And, and I said, so according to Colossians 2.14, it says that he actually canceled the record of debt against us. And one of the women popped up, and they didn't hardly respond to it. They just said, one of the women popped up, she goes, I think that's Calvinism. And I said, well, it might be. And then, and then, <laughs> and then one of the guys said, do you believe in limited atonement? And I said, uh, yeah, I said, actually, I do. And he got actually kind of upset. And he, uh, he got upset at me. He, uh, he said, we need to talk. And so I said, okay. I said, I'm... I'm willing to talk. He came the next Bible study. He had a stack of like 30, you know, papers printed off from the internet, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we we started talking about the atonement, and uh, they were not happy <laughs> with me at all, and uh, they ended up kicking us out of the Bible study. Wow. Yeah, that's quite <clears throat> interesting. They well, they didn't kick us out per se. They didn't tell us, but they we had let we weren't going to the church anymore, and they started another Bible study with the whole group, but they didn't invite us. So, yeah, that's that can happen. If I'm not mistaken, uh, David and I did not meet at G3, correct? <laughs> no, that's right, Larry. Uh, no, you said you spotted my daughter and me there. You saw uh, her with the MacArthur Study Bible. After I posted a question, or I said, "Were you there?" and you you said, "I said I was there with my daughter." And you said, "Did she have a MacArthur Study Bible?" And apparently, we were sitting right next. Yeah, to you were her. sitting right in front of me, and I think that that first evening breakout where they did Q and A in the in the uh, yeah gym or whatever room that is. <laughs> what's room. funny? What's so What's so great about that conference is my my daughter has is a new babe in Christ as well, relatively, and she, thank goodness, now uh, now I realize has the gift of discernment, but she knew nothing of Calvinism, Reformed faith, any of that. I didn't tell her anything. I just said, you want to go to this great conference with me? It's a bunch, bunch of great Christians, and we get to listen to sermons and learn about God and have fellowship, and she's like, sure, I'd love to. So I took her, and after the first day, she's like, Daddy, I've never heard such truth and and real preaching and I love this this is just this is amazing where has this all been because we've been going to this church this non-denominational megachurch I said well honey quite frankly this is what biblical Christianity teaches this is the Bible this is what this is what it sounds like and I wanted you to be exposed to it and I didn't want to tell you anything about it um, and I wanted you to get the impression on your own, and she she loves it now, and she's just on fire for it. She, her new favorite guy is Paul Washer, and she loves Paul Washer, and just mm. just loves his Man. truthful, passionate preaching. And she just she's and she's very discerning. She'll sit in church, and something will be said, and she'll look over at me and say, "That's not really true, is it, Daddy?" And I said, "No, no, it's not. It's a little out of context." And she'll pick up on it quickly, but. Huh. My 13-year-old daughter is about like that. She listens to a lot of stuff I do, and she's <laughs> we're in church or somewhere, and they say something that's not quite right. They said that's she picks up on it quick. Yep. Hmm. How old is your daughter, uh, Dave? <clears throat> she's 15. That's awesome. Yeah, that she's awesome. she's uh, loves it. She's very. She texts me, and 
just she's uh, she's on fire for the Lord and and knowledge and truth and the gospel matters and she goes with me. We've been going to this um, Trinity PCA <clears throat> Reformed Church for the last two months. We'll go to this church service first together. This Trinity uh, PCA Church at 8:30 and then at 11:30 go to the other church, the one we've been going to, and. Um, she really likes the differential, and she's um, she, she sees it. It's, it's black and white when you go to both. But I don't want to be divisive, especially to my ex-wife. I, she's very happy, and um, I don't want to get into, well, the kids aren't going here, because it is her call. It's in the decree, the divorce decree, where they go. But, you know, I'm just grateful that, She's no longer a Roman Catholic because we were married in a Catholic church. We went to Catholic church. I wasn't ever converted. I was a Presbyterian since birth, but I just thought, well, it's the same God. That was the depth of my Christianity is I just said, oh, it's the same God, same Christ. What's the difference? So I went to Catholic church for 14 years while we were married. And then when we got divorced, she, um, for some reason, God, God drew her out of the Catholic Church, and she joined a Baptist church. And I'm so grateful that my kids and her are not Catholics. I mean, it could be, it could always be worse. They could be in a an apostate religion, which I believe Catholic, Roman Catholicism is. I think those are the hardest people to um, evangelize. I believe because they believe they're the most righteous, and they have the religion the the total right way, and we're all heretics. But easy believism and uh, these mega church entertainment centers aren't, in my opinion, as as bad. If you were going to put somebody in a place, it's not as bad and, and not as difficult in getting them out of there. It's it's up to the Holy Spirit anyway. All of this is up to the Holy Spirit, not me. Uh, I can impress upon. On, on people, the truth, and that's all I can do is expose them to the truth, and the rest is up to God for him to move in people. So that gives me comfort, especially being a Calvinist. I think it's so much more comforting being Reformed because it's not all up to us, whereas an Arminian thinks everything's up to them and they have to be as persuasive as they possibly can to get somebody to do something for their salvation. All I can do is offer them the truth of the gospel and leave the rest up to God, and I'm comfortable with that. If you don't mind me asking, uh, is there um, is there any potential for reconciliation if your wife is now, um, if you believe she's a Christian? Well, there always is. I've prayed about it. Um, I haven't really pursued that. We are friends. We're very cordial to one another. We share the kids whenever we have an open relationship with the children, <clears throat> but I haven't really, um, I mean, I prayed about that. I'm not going to push anything on my agenda. Um, it certainly is a possibility. There's no question about that, um, but that's up to the Lord to lead me in that way. I'm not going to, best case scenario, it would happen just for the family and the children, but it's. Um, I'm not sure what his will is in that regard, and I'm not sure about. I've, I've wondered about the biblical answer to divorce and then remarriage with the same person. I'm, I haven't found any scripture to support it. 
Well, I, you know I, what I mean. I, I, I would say, from a biblical perspective, that if the divorce, not, this is this is, you can just take this for whatever. But if there, the the Bible gives grounds for divorce. So if divorce is not done for biblical reasons, then the people are in essence adultery, right? While still married. Uh, oh, so, really? Um, I mean, gr- divorce is prescribed uh, in the Bible as a permission by God. Uh, for specific cases of abandonment uh, or <clears throat> adultery. And if it is done for any other reason other than that, Jesus says in Matthew 19 and Matthew 5, you cause them to commit adultery. So, okay. um, so, and I don't know, maybe uh, Larry and um, Vincent, you guys have some thoughts on this too, but uh, that's that's my uh, position. I think what what the Bible uh, says on this, and I've done a lot of studying on this because this is something that uh, kind of strikes home with uh, me too. Um, I come from a conservative Mennonite background, which teaches that any divorce and remarriage at all is adultery. They would actually tell people that are divorced and remarried that uh, they need to separate uh, that marriage, and because it's living in adultery, I reject that. I don't believe that's biblical at all. But um, uh, I've done a lot of studying on this because my wife uh, was divorced uh, quite a few years before, mm-hmm. uh, before I met her. I, this is my first marriage, but it is her second. Okay. And um, and so I I did a lot of heart searching and stuff because I come <clears throat> from a background when I became a Christian, I was like, um, you know, what what do I do here? I've always been taught that, you know, the the situation that I'm in is is adultery right now. Right. And right. Uh, so. So I had to search scripture, and I, I did an intense uh, study on it. And I was, uh, and uh, that is the uh, conclusion that I came to. Um, and uh, so I don't know. Do you guys do uh, the other guys in here? Do you guys have any uh, thoughts on that? I would agree. I would agree with your assessment. This is Larry. Okay. That. Uh, that divorce for any other reason other than the biblical reason uh, is not a legitimate divorce. Yeah, they would still, still be, in essence, still be married. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Now, let yeah. me ask you this. <clears throat> now, let's define what fornication is, because what sort of led to our uh, divorce was me catching her, not having the, not doing the act of intercourse, but um, you know, engaged in a very deep romantic mm-hmm. uh, activity <clears throat> that certainly led me to believe that that was what was going on, but I can't prove any of that, and I've never have proved it, nor do I really want to prove it, but I, I don't know what you have to, what is fornication per se? Well, it's, uh, the King James is the only translation that uses the word fornication in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, which is is what I'm assuming you're referring to. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, or whatever it is, sexual immorality, I guess, is yeah. the other. It, it comes from the Greek word porneia, right. uh, which uh, is where we get the word pornography from. So it's all sexual deeds, okay. you know, any any immoral sexual act all right. well, uh, then. Would, would fall underneath that category. So, you know, if if you... <clears throat> Is this is this something that she repented of or made it? Any- yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I stayed with her um, almost a year after the act, trying to. We weren't saved at the time. We were both yeah. unbelieving, and plus we went to Catholic church and we were married in Catholic church. So I don't even know where to put all that. 
you know, as far as a true godly marriage. It certainly wasn't. We were unbelievers, um, although yeah. we thought we were both believers because we went to Catholic Church. Um, but yeah, I mean, she was very sorry for it. And uh, as far as asking God for forgiveness, I don't know. I've never asked her if she's asked God for forgiveness for that. But I stayed with her about a year, but I could never trust her again and just fell out of love with her sort of and ended up getting a divorce. Um, so it wasn't like it happened right after the event, but it was sort of just the the foundation of it of the marriage tr trust breaking down and then I filed for divorce and in retrospect I wish I wouldn't have and I wish I would have stayed and knowing what I know now if I was a saved Christian back then I guarantee you I wouldn't have divorced her I just wouldn't have I mean I just yeah it's so much different now that we are both believers there's so much uh, you know just forgiveness and there's no resentment, no bitterness, nothing like that anymore. It's gone. It's history. So we're both just humbled by our salvation in Christ. So I don't know. The one thing that um, I would say is I, I would definitely clear this up. There is no biblical, there, there's no issue with getting remarried to somebody that you were divorced from unless you have been remarried. Uh, unless either party has been remarried, then um, I would actually go to Deuteronomy 24. Um, the, you know that um, you shouldn't go back to your previous spouse, um, but but that's not that particular situation. So I don't if you because you had asked earlier, you didn't know if remarriage was something that would be permitted uh, biblically, and and I would my position on that would be from my studies of it is that uh, there would be no issue with that since neither one of you have been remarried. Okay, interesting. All right, that's good to know. Larry, you guys, uh, you and uh, Vincent, have any thoughts on that? No, that that does bring me to a question that we were discussing in, a, in, a, in the channel the other day was, uh, is a marriage, say, a, a justice of the peace marriage or... A marriage not done religiously is it? How valid is that? Whenever it comes to well, too um, religious. I mean, a lot of people. I've heard people say that if it isn't done in the church, is it isn't a real marriage? And I'm just wondering y'all's view on the validity of marriages done apart from the church. Well, uh, I would I would go to um, in in Genesis when. When uh, uh, Abraham sent his servant to um, to find a wife for his son Isaac, it says that um, uh, he brought Rebecca, you know, back, and she went into his tent and became his wife. So, um, I th I think marriage is within whatever culture whatever the 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 method within that culture is to demonstrate a a a permanent commitment to somebody i think that's respected before god that's why there is marriage in all cultures because this was something that was established by god you know back in genesis so all cultures have a have have marriage and have marriage covenants. You know, they all maybe engage in them a little differently, but 
but you know, a, a let's say a you know a Hindu couple becomes a Christian, they don't have to get remarried because they were married in whatever method you know whatever way Hindus do it. Because one becomes a Christian and one is not. Yeah, if one if one becomes a Christian and one is not, their marriage doesn't become null and void. I think yeah. Paul addresses that in First Corinthians seven quite clearly. Hmm. So, I mean, you would have to think about it. So, the Corinthian <clears throat> church that Paul was addressing were were any of those Corinthians uh, pagans, Gentiles? Were they married in any sort of uh, Jewish uh, religious setting, or were they married underneath Roman law? Plus, I think it does say it does tell you, you know, if you're the spouse of a unbeliever, that if, to stay if you can, and absolutely, so that it may benefit them. Yeah, absolutely. And and what what my point on that would be is that that marriage was not a church, you know, marriage, but yet Paul, we see Paul respecting that marriage and holding it up as being a covenant before God. I agree too. I'm just uh, it's just weird that I've, we've run across a few people who lately that have said if it's not done in the church it's not a real marriage. Just like I I think the institution of marriage is from the foundation of you know <clears throat> yeah that's on they leave their, you know, leave their father and mother to join together in marriage you know from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. I don't think that that's biblically tenable in any way. That would kind of remind me a little bit of some Roman Catholicism. Roman, you know, Catholicism at one point, you know, held, and they even still somewhat do today. Uh, you can, if you're married as a Roman Catholic, um, the only way that you can get remarried and, and stay a Roman Catholic is if a priest would some reason annul, say that you actually have legitimate reasons and annul the marriage. But... Uh, and I, don't, I don't think they can take communion after that. Can yeah, I don't believe so. I do not believe so. I think a lot of them do because they don't check things, but they're they're not supposed to. I think it's often enforced. Yeah, I, I think that David's situation is pretty cut and dry, pretty straightforward. I think typically I see um, situations that get kind of more complicated when folks maybe are married that are both unbelievers and then they get divorced, and then you know one or both of them come to come to faith in Christ. And uh, of course, even in that situation, um, them being unbelievers, many more often than not, there has been you know adultery that's happened in the interim, which gives a uh, you know biblical uh, foundation to to uh, divorce legitimately anyway. Yeah. Well, hopefully that was a little helpful to you. Um, yeah, that was very good. Thank you. <clears throat> my, my next question would be about loving. If I don't love her like I, you know, yeah, you love a woman and fall in love with her and ask her to marry you, that's not there. That's why I'm so hesitant. I don't have that that feeling and I don't want everything to be guided by feelings but if you don't have that I'm in love with you type feeling do you ever it, even go there I mean that's sort of the barometer I'm using and I just have no feelings like that at all for her I mean is that a biblical requirement no that's what I'm saying but I, I agree I mean that's 
I understand what you're saying. No, it's not. I mean, I guess it's not. You don't have to be in love to be married. I see. Maybe this would be a good discussion to have. What What's the What What are your thoughts, Vincent and um, and Larry? Uh, what What is What would be the biblical definition of love? And, and And I'm saying this because this is something I've had to grow in myself. Is from a cultural perspective, from especially a postmodern culture, but just in, from a cultural perspective, how does our culture define love? in comparison to how does the Bible define love. Any ideas on that? Well, I would say um, on that, our, you know, our culture defines love, basically things that you're smitten with or you have a, uh, that you covet or you have an affection for where biblical sexual desire would be, um, you know, basically a sacrificial love where you would, um, you know, sacrificially um, support and, and, and do service to an individual regardless of what your your emotional feelings may be. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, plus, you know, we're commanded, you know, to love love our wives as Christ loved the church. You know, be willing to lay down our lives, and it, ha it has no bearing on your feelings towards your spouse. Yeah, it's I mean, the command to do, irrespective of your feelings. Well, and as, as, a, as a Calvinist, we understand that there was the eternal covenant bef between God and the, or the Father and the Son, and that God gave the Son a particular people, and there were a covenant people joined in covenant to God, and so it was a commitment. I think, I think biblically loved is defined as a commitment, <clears throat> um, as, as saying, I will, I will stay true to my covenant, I will stay true to my promises and my commitment, uh, and that's what God does. And because Jesus stayed true to His covenant with the Father, first of all, it's the it's that love between the members of the Trinity, which results in our salvation, and then it, His love to us as the covenant people of God um, is what is what um, drove him to the cross. He stayed faithful to that commitment and to that covenant. And so I think that is what we define biblical love. You know, I don't know if Jesus necessarily had, you know, warm, fuzzy, emotional highs about us going to the cross. I think it was, uh, I think it was a commitment. I believe that's what it was. I would agree. I would say, you know, I've been married 20 years now, and there's times that you're gonna, you're gonna have to. You're not always gonna be in love with your partner, so, I mean, people get on people's nerves at times. Yeah. Uh, so, it, I had to come to the conclusion, you know, realization that it, my role as the husband has n nothing to do. With either how she feels about me or how I'm feeling about her at the time, I, I have a duty to do, and, and you know I've been given this by God, and I can't let emotions dictate whether I, I do what I'm commanded by God to do or not. Well, and what does Jeremiah 17:9 tell us about the heart? It tells us that our heart is desperately wicked, right? Yep. Yep.
So how about you? You married with kids, or you talking to me? Yeah. Yeah, my my wife and I we've been married for we're going on eight years, and we have a, a little four year old son, uh, Jesse. Really? Just put him to bed here a little bit ago, but um, yeah, and and I experienced the same thing as as you, Vincent. You know, um, you you mentioned, uh, you know, do we always have that emotion and that feeling? No, that's that's part of marriage. Um, right, but when you started your relationship. You had it when you recording her. You had it. Yeah, yeah, that that's true. Right. No, I was not a. That's your barometer. That. That's that's the barometer that God has given us, I guess, to see if we're compatible or attracted. I mean, there is the the very real thing of c- attraction and and courting and all that stuff. We're not robots. We just say, "Let's get married. I'll be committed to you, and let's roll with it." It's it's all about you know, in our in our the way we're made, we are made to be attracted to another person, and and it starts that way. So, I think that all you know marriages start in the quote in love, attraction, courting, whatever you want to call it, paradigm. But so that, just starts more of a modern invention, though. I mean, that's that's well, not history. Okay, I, I agree. There's, there were arranged marriages back in the Old Testament, but so, so let me ask you this question. So let's say, let's say I, um, you know, I, I put on, uh, I, I become very uh, uh, inactive. I put on 150 more pounds than what I have right now. Uh, my wife, you know, looks at my rolls, and she, I'm pretty disgusting. Um, so she's like, I'm not attracted to you anymore. Um, is that grounds for her to? Uh... No, 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 no. I'm talking about the beginnings of. Uh, I was, I was commenting on how you guys are, are talking, you know, about after being married and you have days where you don't, you know, get along. You have bad days and so on and so forth, and it's a commitment. And I agree with all of that completely. But I'm talking about the in, the initial part of courting and being attracted to somebody. And that's how marriages start. They don't start in the middle of, I want to be committed to you. And, you know, there's more to it than, than just plucking out the middle of a marriage and saying this is how it should be. It's a commitment. They start with attraction and whatever you want to call it, the feelings of love or falling in love or whatever you want to call it. Um, well. The the that, one thing that's human nature. Yeah, I, I I agree with that part, but here's the thing: the reason that most of our marriages don't go much beyond uh, marriage break apart. I mean, a, a high percentage. I don't know what the percentage of them is, but a high percentage of them break apart uh, shortly after people uh, get married these days, and that's because that's all there is. Because well, yeah. while while there's nothing wrong with having an attraction and uh, a desire for uh, another person. What needs to be equal in that is a complete and total commitment to the covenant established, and uh, that needs to be even greater because that that feeling and that attraction is is a temporary uh, thing that will f- flux up and down. But the covenant should be should be persistent and should go on no matter what, no matter how. What happens? No matter if my wife ends up in an accident uh, and 
oh, I, I pray that the Lord this doesn't happen, but, you know, she's disfigured or something and she's no longer, you know, necessarily attractive. I, I need to remain committed to that woman. This is the woman that God has given me. And right. so you know, regardless of what happens, I need to remain faithful to that covenant regardless if I don't have the the initial attractions that uh, in, are the reasons why I got into this covenant with this person. So any other thoughts anybody else have on that topic? Or you guys want to talk about something else? <laughs> I think we probably could go to something else or else we'll probably never get David on another call. Yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> true. What else about your life, David, can we uh, dissect? Can we pick apart, yeah. <laughs> uh, believe me, I'm I'm open for anything. But um, Here. Um, don't, don't ask me to share anything personal because you guys have to too. So, so David, David are you, did you uh, register for G3 for next year already? I haven't yet. I'm uh, going through some issues financially, and I'm, I'm, uh, I have to plan very carefully about things. Yeah. But I told my daughter today, Morgan, because she asked me when it was, and I told her uh, it came out for registration. But we're going to find a way to go. We haven't registered yet. Yeah. We'll probably do a late registration. Um, the last one I went to, it turned out great. I was going to go a week before because I was able to get off of work, and I went to try to get tickets and it was sold out. So I posted a little message on one of my uh, resting on the five solas group. If anybody had tickets and it turns out somebody couldn't come from New York because of the weather. So they gave me one of their tickets and then my daughter took it on her own initiative and called the conference and talked to uh, Josh, believe it or not. And he said, just come, we'll find a way for you. So we went yes. and, and it was it was wonderful. So, what what are your thoughts, uh, everybody that's in here, on these these different conferences and things like that? Uh, you know, in relation to the local church and and all that. What what are your thoughts? Are these are these conferences good? Um, are, is there is there an issue with with them, or how do you guys view them? Well, I think they're much like listening to sermons online and so forth. They're supplementary to um, the primary relationship and, uh, and authority of your local church. Um, I was greatly blessed by the, the G3 conference, and you know, being able to um, you know sit there and a lot of that teaching is is amazing. But at the same time, uh, you certainly can't replace you know ecclesiastical authority and um, the, the fellowship that you get at a local church level. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I, I think one of the things that is a big problem uh, within the American evangelical community is that we have, we, we frankly, we have too many churches. Uh, and what ends up happening whenever you have an issue with with a particular church, what do you do? You just hop to a different one. Yeah. And so there's no there's there's no church discipline anymore. Uh, in fact, a lot of churches, I think, are afraid of church discipline because they're afraid they'll lose members. Um, and so I yeah. think it affects... I, I've been yearning yeah. since becoming a believer. I've been in a church that I don't really even consider a church. I don't know if that's appropriate to say, but I really don't. I think it's an entertainment complex for people to come 
where there's no New Testament church whatsoever, as described in the New Testament. So I'm excited about getting into a real church that practices um, by the Corinthian-style defined church, with church discipline, membership, accountability, all that stuff. I, I am so excited about that because the church I go to now is basically on a uh, television screen of the pastors, oh, an hour away. There's 12 satellite campuses. Uh, I've never met the pastor, but they have these associate pastors at the church that sort of act as the surrogate pastor, but they really don't enforce any, I mean, to, to be a member there, you just sign a card and says, yes, I want to be a member, and I believe in Jesus. That was the extent of it. Now, when I joined, I had no idea about any of this. I thought it was all great and good, but as I've become more mature, I realized this is not a New Testament church whatsoever, and I yearned to get involved and become part of a real church body. Um, so that's that's what I'm doing right now, and I want to take my time and, and survey around various churches and then my question to you guys would be, if I'm a active member of this church, do I have to, when I leave, can I just leave? Or do I have to write them a letter and tell them why? Or I don't want to get involved in a big, you know, I am going to, I have voiced my concerns, but I haven't gone to the pastor because, A, he's not there. He's 65 miles away. Um, and he's made it clear in some of his sermons that he doesn't read his, quote, criticizing emails and stuff like that. So he sort of gives a, the impression that he probably wouldn't listen anyway. So how do you become a non-member? Do you have to formally do it or just ask the church that I'm joining? I would say you, know, you definitely want to, uh, you know, kind of, close the book on on the previous relationship and you know, how you are describing you know how that's set up you know that would probably be most appropriate um, talking to the associate pastor whoever kind of fills that surrogate role at your at your satellite location and then just letting him know why and I think that would be sufficient to end it okay yeah, I, I would encourage you to talk. I mean, we, we, we did. The first church we left, we didn't, but we weren't very mature Christians at the time. But uh, the Calvary Chapel that we left recently, I talked to a lot of people before I left. Um, you know, I was very, I tried to be, um, I was very appreciative. I, I, I told the pastor there that I really appreciated his teaching um, and that, uh, that uh, he had been a tremendous blessing in my life, and he had. So those things were all very truthful. And um, he did ask why we were leaving, so I, I told him that um, one of the things that, uh, you know, concerned me is, you know, a lot of the music that was played, um, mm -hmm. uh, I don't think is glorifying to God. And, um, and, I, and I told him that, um, you know, I, I believe that salvation is by grace alone and that I want to go to a church that teaches that because that's what I believe. And, you know, his response was, well, we believe that here too. And I'm, well... <laughs> that's where so, the argument begins, right? Yeah. So, so I, I, I didn't really argue with him, but I, I, I did. I had the conversation with a bunch of people. I told them. And because uh, I, I didn't want to just walk out and, and just leave. So it took several, several weeks to leave. So I left, uh, you know, I went to the same church Pentecostal type for 
I grew up in it, so let me tell you that leaving there was was very difficult. I mean, they, they were family, uh, right. but after spending probably a year, you know, discussing things with them, <laughs> and I, you could tell that it, it wasn't, they weren't going to change. So I had to leave at that point. But it, it was difficult. Like I said, I grew up from maybe first grade with these people. <laughs> Yeah. 20, 25 years, and uh, that's a very difficult thing to do. But I, I couldn't let my family sit under that kind of teaching anymore. Once I, once my <coughs> eyes were open and I could see the air of it, I, I just couldn't let my family sit there anymore. And so yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a, short, it was a hard time. That especially the first year after we're leaving there, it was, it was difficult. Yeah. And I think it depends, you know, and sometimes this can be kind of a difficult situation because if you're leaving a, what, what you think is, is a true body of believers, I think that you'd maybe treat that situation a little differently than, than maybe a group that is completely, you know, heretical. Right. Um, you know, if you're part of the Mormon church yeah. uh, or Jehovah's Witnesses or something like that, I mean, I, I think the way that you leave is probably different. Um, so I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but there are churches out there that I, I don't think deserve the, um, the 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 formal exit, you know, and and you know, in the way that I did, you know, I, I you know told them how much I appreciated them and that you know there was a lot of things that were really good about the church. Um, I just you know had had concerns and um, I wanted to take my family and my my son and my wife to a place where they were edified and they were encouraged because my wife became reformed shortly after I did and she is like uh, she she is the discernment queen <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, my, my wife anytime she hears about somebody new she is on the internet googling the name and looking up what they say and uh, she tells me she does all my discernment research for me and uh, and it was actually her that was bothered uh, but I, I was bothered by the teaching uh, at, at our last church, um, some of the things that came across the pulpit. But mm -hmm. she was really bothered by the music, uh, even more than I was, and uh, she she wanted to to move on. Uh, let me let me parallel that. That music's probably the what drove us out of there. I mean, by the time we left, but I mean, you know, 25 years ago, the Pentecostal church was you know reserved and 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 more, you know strict about everything but by the time we left it was literally a rock concert and my head would hurt after the music was done uh, I mean it was it was blaring and light shows and I, yep. I, could, I couldn't see that being glorifying to God in any way yeah for us it was just a lot of the uh, the lyrics um, in, in the music I, I just I, I don't, you know Sometimes you wonder: Are we singing about our girlfriend here? Or are we singing about Jesus? Yeah, exactly. Um, and a lot of that stuff from uh, Jesus culture, um, from uh, what's the Bethel Church, yeah. Reading, uh, Hillsong, Hillsong, uh, yeah. Hillsong. A lot that I'm sorry, that music it does not glorify Christ and the true gospel in any way. No. And that just really started to bother us. Yeah. Oh, looks like we have uh, Andrew uh, joining in. Let me add Andrew to the broadcast. 
Andrew, uh, you're in the broadcast. Welcome. Hi, you just I just was cruising Facebook and I just clicked on it, so <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. It's too, late, too late now, you can't leave. Yeah. Nope. Yeah, you're stuck. Uh, Andrew was actually a part of the uh, discussion yesterday with the atheists uh, that went for like three and a half hours, so That was an interesting discussion. I actually wanted to uh, to kind of go back with that, uh, Andrew. I want to. Um, you you had uh, you were bringing up the question towards the end uh, when we were kind of off the air about um, how does uh, Christopher? I believe it was Christopher Mowdy's position that you know he just has maximal certainty. He doesn't actually have. Uh, certainty. So he's dealing with um, his best guess. I think you had a question on that kind of at the end. I, I don't know if uh, we were able to satisfy you at all with that or not. Oh, um, you know, I'm. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still thinking about that. Um, I'm still th trying to wrap my hand, my head around. You know, this is a common technique used by a lot of atheists. I've noticed that they go to this maximal certainty argument and I almost want to ask him this question like and I don't even know the are you maximally certain that you're maximally certain yeah, yeah. <laughs> well I, no you have a good you have a actually you you hit the nail on the head what 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 they're actually doing is typically what I ask them is are they certain that truth is measured on a scale of probability is what I ask them because to say that truth and and here's the here's the thing I was trying to point out, and I wish I would have given more of an analogy um, at the end, but I was trying to point out to Christopher that his position of that this is just his best educated guess, you know, when it comes to induction, when it comes to the laws of logic, is that he doesn't actually live his life that way. And I'll give this example. He works at a lab, right? So if if let's say there was somebody, let's say he's a manager at his lab. And he tells uh, somebody that, that works for him that, you know, it's just my best guess that induction is true, that nature is uniform, and that, that the laws of logic are, you know, that, that's just my best guess that these are things that we should, we should adhere to. So if, if his employee says, okay, well, you know, I, you know, that's just your best guess, my guess is that nature isn't uniform and that the law of non-contradiction isn't something that I want to follow. And, and that's just your guess, so this is my guess. So I'm going to, from now on, all my experiments, I'm just going to assume that contradictions can be true, and I'm going to assume that gravity could change any moment. So I, I'm going to put those types of results in my, you know, I, I don't even know if it's going to produce the same thing. I'll put those into my reports and everything uh, as, my, as my results. You know what? You know what Christopher would do. He would fire that person, and the reason he would fire them is because he can't live by that. You can't live as if that was true. Does that make sense? Yeah, and exactly. There, there was another thing I wanted to point out too. Is um, I was thinking about this from I, I'm not a mathematician, but I've had a lot of applied mathematical training. And I was thinking about this. I think he's actually, when he uses this term maximally certain, um, I was thinking about this kind of today. And he defines that as uh, 
one minus an infinitesimally small number where one is, you know, would be absolute certainty. Um, I think he's confusing some things mathematically when he's using that definition for the following reasons. When you're talking about probability, there's a difference between probability and, and statistics. Probability is something that you assign a priori to an event, to a random variable. I, I'm not trying to get too technical, but I think it's important to understand why I think he's, he's misusing probability, is that um, once the event happens, okay, in, in, like for example, in quantum mechanics, that's called collapsing the wave function. So we have a, a probability that a certain electron is going to be in a certain energy state prior to, um, take, to taking a measurement. But once we take a measurement, we determine where it actually is. That's called collapsing the wave function. So he was asserting that there is something called absolute uh, objective reality. And he's saying he's forming this a priori model about it. So if after the event happens, is then is then he then does he have a hundred percent certainty after it happens? Because if he doesn't, it's like he he's really saying that he's affirming a an objective reality, but he really isn't. I don't know if anything I'm saying is making sense, but from a mathematical point of view. It's almost like he's abusing the math of this term maximal certainty because he he wants to claim that he's making an a priori statement. So, for example, then after the event happens, let's say it's rolling a die or anything, and it comes up six, is he still going to affirm that he's only maximally certain, that is less than 100% sure that it's six? Well, that's a violation of the definition of probability because probability is always something you assign a priori to the event happening. You yeah. see what I, I don't know if I'm making any sense. No, you're making you're making no absolutely, and and I agree with you. I mean, when in quantum mechanics, and and obviously you're more familiar with this than I am, but in quantum mechanics, we measure uh, position and velocity based upon a scale of probability until we actually take a measurement. Correct. And we actually get the results. Yeah, and then that's called so basically you create yep. what they call a wave function, which is a probability density function of every place it could possibly be. Yes. Once you take the measurement, it collapses down to a particular point, and that becomes one hundred percent, not maximally yep. certain as his definition, not one minus an infinitesimally small number, one hundred percent. So yep. then, after he has does that measurement, is he still going to claim? Well, I'm still maximally certain, i.e., not one hundred percent. It's there. And if he is, then I think mathematically, and I could be wrong, I really got to think through this before I'd actually go to him with this argument, but I think he's actually abusing the definition of probabilities, if that makes any sense. Well, because that's how that probability is defined. You, 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 call, you enumerate all the possible combinations beforehand, then you do the experiment, and then one becomes the result, and that becomes the result with 100% certainty. Yeah, he's he's making a category error, and, and just the rolling of a dice could be a good example. So prior to me rolling on the dice, the fact that it's 5 is a 1 in 6 probability. But then after rolling it, if it is landing on 5, then it is absolutely, it's 1 to 1. It is actually 5. So that's my question to him, then once it hits 5, is he still going to call that 
Well, I'm only maximally certain it's five. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, and uh, I don't know if you heard the beginning of the broadcast, but he told me this, uh, and uh, so you may not have caught this, but we were talking briefly about quantum mechanics, and he told me uh, when I when I brought up the second law of logic, um, the law of non-contradiction, A cannot be both A and not A in the same time in the same place. Um, he said that in quantum mechanics, contradictions are true. And I said, well, from my study of quantum mechanics, I would disagree with that. I think there's things that are paradoxical. You know, we, in other words, we uh, observe, d depending on the observation, uh, a particle may appear as a particle or it may appear as a wave uh, function. But that is dependent upon the, the observation. The act of observing it um, is what interacts with the particle and uh, is why it displays particular properties. But what I asked him is, is, I said, okay, so then my next question for you, Christopher, is are you then saying that contradictions can be true within your worldview? And he said, he said, oh, well, I hadn't thought of that, and he didn't want to answer the question. So I said, okay, but you just did say that you believe at quantum, at the quantum level, contradictions are true. And he said, well, yeah, but that's not at my level. And I said, okay, so why are you arbitrarily applying the law of non-contradiction to your level, but not at the quantum level? Uh, can you give me any other reason? It sounds to me like you're being arbitrary. And uh, he couldn't really give an answer to that. And th this is really what fundamentally has to happen with atheism, is they cannot affirm the law of non-contradiction, which really collapses their argument against the Bible that they don't believe it because it has contradictions in it. Sure, and to dovetail on what you were saying there, um, for him to say that about quantum mechanics, I, I don't, well, you've heard the quote from Richard Feynman, a uh, great theoretical physicist and so forth, said that nobody really understands quantum mechanics, and nobody really does. Well, we, when people talk about quantum mechanics, and I don't know if we can do a whole discussion about quantum mechanics, <laughs> but what happens is, is we're able to build a bunch of mathematical models, okay, based on, like, for example, the Schrodinger equation, yeah. which is a differential equation that describes potential and kinetic energy and the relationship between them. And we're able to build up that model, and then we create a probability density function. But the thing that happens, and I'm being very technical here, I apologize, but the thing is, is that What's happening at the quantum level, there isn't, it's just that when you go, to, go ahead to try to measure something, the uncertainty principle comes into effect. And this is where people tend to abuse greatly. They, they try to pull philosophical uh, arguments out of quantum mechanical phenomena. And, and that's just not true. What quantum mechanics is, in a very real sense, is, is a mathematical model that describes reality, and they almost confuse the map for the place, if, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, I, I think that they're doing the same thing. Have you ever heard people that completely did not understand Einstein's theory of general relativity, and they said, well, that Einstein proved that everything is relative, and therefore morality is relative? Well, <laughs> that is a category error of immense proportions, and I think that they're doing somewhat the same thing with what may appear paradoxical uh, from uh, what may appear paradoxical at, at a at a quantum level. Uh, quantum level, we don't have enough of a clear understanding 
uh, we you know we ap apply the uncertainty principle and things like that. Uh, we we don't have a clear enough understanding, but to say that it actually is a a true contradiction, I think is uh, is a category error and is also uh, a statement out of ignorance. Yeah, I would agree. I I would say that anyone who can say they're whenever you know you see this when you go into the New Age portion of Barnes and Noble, you know New Age por New Age section of Barnes and Noble bookstore, all this stuff about quantum mechanics and Eastern religion. It's the same stuff. They're trying to pull some sort of uh, religious, uh, philosophical, theological stuff out of um, the 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 findings of quantum mechanics, which it's just it's it's similar to I would call it a category here. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Larry, did you have any input on this discussion? I know you have some uh, some uh, training, and I think some of these areas. Yeah, I'm actually thinking I'm going to bed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Any thoughts on it though before you run off? Uh, no, not really. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think you're right, uh, Andrew. I think uh, that I think uh, that yeah, they're they're making fundamentally a category error. And I like your analogy. Um, I think we might need to see if we can develop that further. Your your analogy of of the probabilistic nature a priori to the actual result, but then taking that uh, a priori probability and then applying it to the actual result. Um, exactly. We, That's uh, exactly right Right on the head because, like, to me, the difference between statistics and, and probability, sorry to cut you off, um, mm -hmm. is that statistics you do after the fact. So that's done a posteriori. So you so you run the experiment multiple times and you gather the results of that experiment repeatedly, like die rolling, and then you come up with things. Then you can create statistical metrics around that, like averages, standard deviations, etc. That's the domain or regime of statistics. Yep. And the regime of probability is when you assess or per, try to predict future results based on a probabilistic model done before the event. And then, so if he has this maximal certainty, and he, he affirmed an objective reality, right? I mean, that is one thing he affirmed, correct? Well, I don't think he can, I, I don't think he can justify that. He tries to affirm that, but um, he's, he, he's going to have to collapse also on that. He, he thinks that he's fairly certain there's an objective reality, but if you would question him on it, he, he can't affirm. He believes that there probably is one, but but he, he cannot be certain. So far in my questioning of him, he's never given me that he is certain on anything at all. So if he affirms objective reality, he's affirming that, right? But then he refuses... This is where I think I'm seeing a contradiction, is that he's affirming an objective reality, but what he's saying is, is that the objective reality itself can be under... You have to apply a statistical probability to it. Mm -hmm. It's a very odd... I think what happens is, and I could be wrong, is they don't want to be cornered in anything, right? That's their goal. Let's give me a get out of jail free card. Give me a way to escape this thing you put me in. So they'll always fall back to this maximally certain. It, you know, I've been hearing this out of the atheists more and more and more. Is this 
they'll use different terminology. He called maximally certain one minus an infinitesimally small number. Isn't that, am I correct? <laughs> yeah, no. But see, where they're inconsistent, and this is where they're, just the statement itself is inconsistent because they are saying they are 100% certain that the only thing that they have is a probability of one minus an infinitesimally small number. They're, they're not saying that that is, they're, they're holding that as actually true. And, right, and so then, then is that an objective reality? Does that, it's not Can an objective reality. An obje no, that, it's not. That's my point, yeah. It's not objective any longer. And that's why I brought up when uh, Evolution False was in here. When he said that, uh, he didn't, didn't Christopher use the term, um, uh, it was probably objective? Didn't he use that term? Were you still on when he used that term? No, I, 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 I was, truthfully, I was in and out because... I was dealing with my five-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, he, he made the comment something about it being probably objective. And I told him that that is a self-refuting statement. Um, it cannot be both probable and objective at the same time. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I'm just not sure, and I've seen a lot of, I think I've seen a lot of atheists use this terminology because I think they think it sounds scientific or something. I, I don't know, but... I, I think there's problems with this idea that they haven't fully thought through. And I I see it as a way for them to dodge answering rather than um, it being an actual valid thing that they're drawing on it. I don't know. If, I, don't well, know. It's, uh, I think it's the Delahanty dodge. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but that's really what it is because they, they don't want to take any sort of position and say, well, I know that this is true. In other words, when you ask them anything that they say, you ask, okay, well, is that, is that a proposition? Are you making a proposition that that is true? And they, they can't really make that about anything at all because then they can be examined. So, but the, the problem with that is, is that in itself is a, they're claiming to be true. So they, they really can't escape from it. Um, they, you, can't re you really can't escape certainty. God has given certainty uh, to each one of his creatures and so that they can function within his reality, but they can only account, they can only justify that certainty if either, you really have two options. There's only two options that, that can account for man's certainty about anything. Either A, man himself is omniscient, or B, he has omniscience that has been, uh, or someone that is omniscient has revealed to him certain things that he could know for certain. Now, this doesn't mean that we know everything that we um that we have a, a not, some, some level of knowledge or belief about is something that we hold to be certainly true. But, but the things that we require in order to function within God's reality, for example, all of us know that the laws of logic are true. All of us know that nature is uniform. We could not even function within God's reality if, if those things were not things that we held to and actually knew with certainty. And while Christopher can't justify nature being uniform. He can't he just tells you that that's something that he's he it's his best educated guess that nature is uniform. He never lives his life that way. He doesn't walk around as if it's his best guess that that gravity is going to continue to function. Yeah, um completely agree. Um yeah, they, they can't they can't live by their professed world view. No one lives that way. And this is why I'm saying 
atheism fundamentally has to deny reality. If you deny God, you have to deny there is actually an objective reality at all. You, you collapse into solipsism. And this is why some atheists actually become solipsists, uh, is because that's really all you're left with. Um, real quick, I was thinking about this too, um, and I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on it. One, one of the lines of questioning I and after the fact, I wish I would have pressed him more on. And by the way, are, are we broad, Are you broadcasting on YouTube or not? Yeah, we're broadcasting right now. Okay. Um, I, I was thinking about this, and, and of course, I, I want to be fair to him because he's not here to defend himself. <laughs> you know. Um, the the other thing I was thinking about too is I've seen this this thing about uh, um, him asking. You know what evidence would it take? And he he cited a subjective experience. You know, a subjective experience. The problem I have with that is that most people who desire that or want that, I believe honestly would even if God gave them that experience would deny that it was real. And what they really, they may not claim that they would, but in practice, I think they would. And so really what they've set up is they've set up a situation where there's nothing God can do to prove himself to him anyway. I, I, he wouldn't go that far, but I've actually gotten atheists to say that. That, you know, well, he said, well, uh, well, uh, I'd like to think I would believe it, you know. But the fact of the matter is, is he, he's not giving God, it, it, not that God could be questioned in this way, but he's not even giving God an opportunity to prove himself in any way because even if God did present himself to him with this subjective experience, I have, God has no, we have no reason to believe that he would accept that experience as being valid. There is no evidence then in that case that would ever prove God to him. You, know, you follow me? Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. I've experienced that, and I've pursued atheists on that line of questioning also. And that's uh, that's why I had asked him if you know if 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 God would show Himself to you, would you even worship Him? Uh, and he he never answered that question. Uh, but yeah, uh, the the atheist when the the best way when they when they say that is, and the way I've pursued it already is okay. Well, if you say that a particular subjective experience could. Um, make you believe in God, can you give me an example of one? C can you describe a particular experience that would cause you to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and confess um, the Christian God as, as being true? And usually whenever you press them, uh, it, it ends up exactly as you say. There's really absolutely nothing that God can do. And what I had challenged Christopher on before I think you came on was I asked him when he said that he can't he can't justify he doesn't feel any need to morality uniformity the laws of logic consciousness when he he says he doesn't feel any need he doesn't he doesn't value having to justify those things and then he that said then he said that he just you know he hasn't seen any evidence enough to believe in God and I said so so you're saying morality, consciousness, uniformity in nature, and the laws of logic are not sufficient personal revelation from God for you to believe in him? Reminds me of Luke 16.31 so much. Yeah. <laughs> he, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Absolutely. Straight up scripture. Yep. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you know, yeah. the thing is, is that you know, as a Christian, I don't believe God needs to use extraordinary means to reach people anyway. I, I believe that His Word and preachers and people and Christians and His sacraments. Um, I'm Lutheran, so that's where the sacrament thing comes from. <laughs> the, uh, the, are sufficient means to um, sufficient means to to bring saving faith and for God to reveal Himself. We we don't necessarily need miracles or extraordinary things in order to in order for God to work. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And Vincent, I mean, even in Matthew twenty-eight seventeen. After they saw the resurrected Lord, what does it say? But some still doubted. And we see that Jesus, in another passage, it says he opened up their minds to believe. And that, that's, that's the thing. Man will find any excuse, doesn't matter how irrational it is, to justify to himself his rejection of the God he knows exists. And... What we do is we preach the gospel, as Andrew was just saying. We use the means that God has given us, and we pray for God's work through that to bring them to the, the truth. But they will willfully, willfully reject and come up with any excuse. And that's why when you ask them, you know, give me an example of something that would cause you to worship him, in most cases they will, you, you won't actually find anything at all. Amen. Yep. It's it's you know, like you said, it's our job to proclaim the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit's job to Yeah. Do the opening of the eyes, making alive. But, well, and I think it's our I think it's our job to uh I think I'm trying to remember the passage, it's in First Corinthians somewhere, but casting down every argument that raises itself up against the knowledge of Christ. So, you know, we, we need to engage in these things. We need to cast down those arguments, but we have to realize it's not the eloquence of our arguments that convinces anyone. It's the work of the Spirit of God. You know, one more thing, Jason, real quick, I was thinking about, too, is um, I wonder a lot of these people, and I was questioning Chris about this, but, you know, in that format, too, it's like I, I want to be polite and civil. I don't want to just try to cram them, you know, or just get them in a, you know, force them in, get combative, because I don't know if that's, that is very successful or works. Yeah. Um, but but what I was trying to press is that, you know, if he wants the subjective experience that God would give him personal revelation or so forth, or, or some sort of conversion experience, is he really asking God for that? Yeah. You know, it, I mean, if that was necessary, why not ask and pray for that? He doesn't want to use the word pray, but he goes, well, I'm not actively seeking that. But it's like, well, why not? Wouldn't you want to know if the living God is real? Then test it. Ask him repeatedly, constantly. Ask him for this thing. And you know what? I'm not saying God may give it to him. Yeah. You know, If he asks for it sincerely, I'm not saying God would, but he may. Well, and I really appreciated when you did that. I thought that was really good when you asked him, you know, if, if you're saying that that's what it will take, well then why aren't you asking for it? That's really the question. And he and he didn't even want to admit that he was going or that he ever even had asked for it. But he says that this is what he would require, but but he doesn't really want to ask for it. 
and I think as Christians, we believe God could possibly give him that. Not that God would just do it, you know, like at pushing a button, but I think there's a chance God could. I mean, if he is real, and that's what it would take, and he's done it in the past, you know, in Scripture, he did it repeatedly. He gave people this experience. Who's to say he couldn't give this to Christopher, too, you know? I'm not saying he would, but he could, you know? Well, and, and I believe when Scripture says that everyone who who calls upon the name of the Lord, who calls out in sincere petition to God to reveal himself. God always reveals himself. But here's the thing. Man does not do that, and Christopher revealed that. Man does does not do that until his heart is regenerated. Yeah. And And I think Christopher revealed that. I I think he did, because have you done that? You're saying this is what is necessary. Do you want to do that? Is that something that you've done? And it wasn't something that he was interested in doing. Oh. Yeah, right. I, I think there's a, I guess they call it the Ordo Salutis. There's a yeah. order of things. Yeah. <laughs> that, that always leads to interesting discussions. Well, well, Vincent, what is what is your best uh, scriptural text? Uh, I mean, obviously you're a Calvinist, so um, you hold to monergism, and I believe Andrew holds to monergism also. Um, what what is your uh, best uh, scriptural grounds for the uh, regeneration preceding faith? Hey, hey, Jason, you have to give me a minute. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me answer that, and I I actually wanted to get into this with you on the. If you're interest, still interested in doing that Lutheran yeah. Reformed Difference podcast, um, truthfully, I don't know anybody in my personal life who's Reformed. Um, everybody I know is is Lutheran. Uh, all the believers I know are Lutheran. Um, just just because that's the the circle I've traveled in pretty much my entire life and so forth. And um, not not to get into an argument with you guys, but I was baptized when I was an infant, and I could tell you this, that almost most of my friends also, uh, you know, I went to a Lutheran grade school, a Lutheran high school, et cetera, et cetera. I was trained up in those, that school system, and everybody I know in my personal life who's Lutheran, who was baptized as an infant, had a very sing- similar experience to me. That is they cannot recall the point in their life when they did not know they didn't have faith. Meaning, they they don't have any conscious thought where they don't have faith, if that makes sense. And to answer your question, where does that come from? I think for in my tradition, because we practice infant baptism, and I not to get in an argument with you guys, I know you guys don't do that, that faith can be created, I believe, right there at that instant, and because I experienced it, and because so many people in my circle have experienced a similar thing. Make sense? Now, yeah, I, I understand that. Now, the one thing I would caution you to do is to not uh, not create doctrine based upon experience. But what, what I would say is that as a Reformed person, as a Calvinist, I... I don't have any objection to God regenerating infants. I think that God can regenerate somebody in the womb if he so desires. I believe John the Baptist 
was regenerated in the womb. So is there, do I have any objection to God, you know, regenerating? There's many people, James White, Reformed Baptist, says that he never remembers a time not believing. Um, and so, you know, do I believe that people can be saved by God at any point in time? Yeah, God's sovereign. He can do as he wills. Now, the one thing that I would not uh, say is biblical, though, um, is I, I do not believe that regeneration is the result of baptism. Um, that I don't think that that's biblically tenable. Um, uh, baptism... Even if, like, even with my Presbyterian brothers, uh, which I don't, um, you know, we can have interesting discussions with, but I respect very many of uh, them. Uh, and even even you Lutherans, um, uh, <laughs> but uh, but I don't I don't believe that um, that uh, regeneration is ever the result of baptism. Uh, it's it's an act of God. So this is where. And we should probably explore this if you want to do that podcast. This is probably where you and I would disagree, and that's fine. You know, we can disagree. But I believe that God works through these sacraments to bring faith. He uses this he uses sacraments as a means to push grace out and to dish out grace. And I believe that baptism is a way um you know, that washing and renewing, that bearing with Christ is definitely a way that you can become, that basically God can put faith into you. And I agree with you, experience doesn't, uh, is, is not a place to gain doctrinal, um, uh, doctrinal, our, our sole source of doctrine should be scripture, period. However, um, well not really however, but I should also, I, I just point out that you know, this is this understanding of having faith. And people ask me, "Well, when were you saved?" I said, "At my baptism. When were you baptized?" I say, "One month old." I, it's it's something that I, I can't. It, that so many people in my life. I mean, the the church I go to, pretty much every single person would tell you the exact same thing. You know, it's so universal in my church that. Um, and I think there's something there, you know. <laughs> do, do you believe, would you say that every infant that is baptized is regenerated? Um, I think that's a good question. That's a really good question. Because I believe people can reject their faith later, um, I believe you I believe you could possibly be re regenerated, but then later uh, throw your faith out. So do you believe that God regenerates those that he has not predestined to salvation? Good question. Yeah, <laughs> Let me think about that. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Yeah, yeah. I'll let you mull over those, Andrew. Um, uh, yeah, I don't have a good answer for that. Is a good question. Uh, I, um, I do believe I do believe that there are people that fall away from the faith, and I believe the reason why they fall away from the faith is that they. I, I believe that I believe in the means of grace. Okay, strongly. That's a big Lutheran thing. So we believe that by hearing God's word, 
and by taking the sacrament, you you continuously stay in the faith, right? That strengthens your faith, and I think you can choke it off by deliberately not. Uh, you can willfully and deliberately choke it off by not by not uh, actively hearing the word, reading the word, and or participating in the supper. Make sense? Yeah. Are you? I'm sure you're familiar with the parable of the sower. Uh, the, the seed falling on the stony ground, the thorn. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, as a reformed person, I would say that the the good soil um, is created uh, by God. God God makes us good soil, and that uh, only those uh, the seed, the gospel, which falls on good ground, does it actually produce true fruits of salvation? And that person is secure. Uh, they're the elect of God. They will persevere to the end. Now, does the gospel fall on stony ground? Does it fall on thorny ground? Does it fall on the path? Yes, and it can sprout up, but since it's not a faith given by God, Philippians 1.29, not only has it been granted to you to believe, but also to suffer for his sake, in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, that faith uh, is a gift of God. Um, that Okay, now, real quick, Jason, what about yeah. the stuff that falls on good soil gets ch choked off by the weeds? Well, that there there were no weeds on the good soil. Uh, if you read the parable, only ones that got choked up were the thorny ground, uh, got choked up by the thorns, uh, the path. Uh, all the seeds that fell on the good soil uh, produced uh, 20... Uh, 40 and what 60 fold um, uh, all produced fruit now they uh, you know some produce more fruit than others but all produce the fruit of salvation and those are the ones that um, the work of God has done the regeneration in and because their faith is a gift from God they persevere till the end and that I believe people fall away from a profession of faith but uh, it it was a mere human profession which was not uh, a gift from God and because it was only from the heart of a human uh, who had maybe all kinds of different reasons for why he uh, professed faith for a period of time um, it was not a faith that adored and in 1st John 2 verse 19 it says they went out from us so it might be shown that they were not of us they went out from us uh, actually right here they went out from us but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So I believe when somebody um, apostatizes and leaves the faith, um, it reveals that they were never truly of us. Okay, now let me ask you two questions, and I don't want to spoil all our conversation pieces. <laughs> <laughs> Do you believe... <laughs> I, do you affirm the? Do you? I don't really understand. I understand portions of Reformed theology. I don't understand all of it. In Reformed theology, do you affirm the means of grace? Do you affirm that God works through His Word? And I know you guys don't believe in sacraments the way we do, but do you believe? How do you believe? Do you believe in the means of grace? And if so, what are those? Like Lutheranism, we believe that the means of grace are God's Word and His sacraments, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper only. And we also believe in a half, what we call a half sacrament, which would be the uh, um, 
confession absolution. So during our worship service, for example, we confess publicly, all of us believers confess publicly that we are sinners and then the pastor up front in, forgives us our sins, but of course he's working as a vessel or an instrument of God to proclaim that absolution that we are truly forgiven. Make sense? Yeah, yeah. What The way I would answer that is I would just read... Um, Romans ten fourteen it says how then will they call on him whom they have not believed and how are they uh, to believe in him whom they have not heard and how are they to hear until someone uh, without someone preaching and how are they able and how are they to preach unless they are sent as written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news but they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says Lord who has believed uh, what he has heard from us so faith comes from by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So I think that the proclamation of the gospel is, I believe God uses means, but I believe the proclamation of the gospel is where faith comes from. Uh, and so I believe that's the means that the Holy Spirit uses. I don't believe that the Holy Spirit runs around and uh, regenerates people outside of a proclamation of the gospel, which is why we need to proclaim the gospel. Um, so I believe God uses means, but I believe that means is the preaching of the gospel. So, and this is where... Go ahead. No, no. I just mean, same, no. same here, same here. So would you... See, now this is where probably you and I would disagree, is that I think baptism and the Lord's Supper, God is also... Those are means by which he can create faith and sustain faith. And to a certain extent, confession absolution. You you know what I mean when I say those terms, right? Confession absolution. I'm not familiar with that one. Okay, so in Lutheranism, um, okay, so we're a very liturgical uh, group, right? So during our worship service, we follow very very strict liturgy, almost Catholic style. And at the beginning part of the service, we all together as a congregation, we profess or claim that we are sinners and that we are, uh, basically we're affirming that we're all sinners to each other. We'll, we use different uh, words. There's words that are printed in our hymnal, for example, but sometimes we'll, we'll change that up and, and go into this sin or that sin more or, or with more emphasis or so forth. And we do this to e publicly to each other and in front of each other so that we all know that, hey, we're all sinners here. It makes sense? Yeah. Uh, and then the pastor up front will turn to us and say, in, we believe that he's being used by God, not that he's forgiving our sins, but God is using him to proclaim this to us, that our sins are forgiven. And so, not that we believe that is a means, but it's it's an active part of what we do. It's what we call a, a half sacrament. And then the other sacraments that we believe in is baptism. So we believe that God can save people through baptism. By uh, And we also believe in the Lord's Supper. That is because, of course, we would disagree with Reformed people that we believe Jesus is really present in the Lord's Supper. Not in the same way. Consubstantiation, I think is what it's called. We call it real presence, which means that when Jesus spoke the, what we call the words of institution, we believe that when he said, this is my body, this is my blood, that was not figurative language. He was literally saying, this is my body, this is my blood. So 
In Lutheranism, we believe you take when you take the sacrament. It's different than Catholicism, however. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we believe that what's present there are four things: bread, wine, Christ's body, and Christ's blood. So when we serve communion to each other, and by the way, we serve communion to each other like uh, at a worship service, usually weekly or every once every other week. Um, that's how important it is to us. Um, that Christ is really there and really present. We're actually, uh, he's coming to us in a, in a real physical form. That he's actually in what we call in Lutheranism and what we call, Luther would call, in, under, and beneath the bread for the host and in, under, and beneath the wine. Make sense? Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with the doctrine of consubstantiation uh, or... <laughs> Consubstantiation, con, uh, contransubstantiation, um, and so I, um, I am familiar with some of the discussions uh, during the early part of the Reformation between Luther and Zwingli on that, and then later Calvin, who uh, took kind of a third position on that. Um, but the the question I would have is in Scripture, when it comes to the means of salvation, um, I really only see scripturally, and this is where I'd like to see you maybe give some scriptural arguments, is uh, I see scripturally the argument for the God, the preaching of the, and the proclamation of the gospel as the means. Um, and it, now, I don't, I don't see anywhere where the Lord's Supper is used as a means of, of, uh, of the Holy Spirit working in the act of regeneration um, or even baptism. Um, well, yeah, okay, let me clarify. I, regeneration probably, I, I got to check on this. I don't think we would think regeneration happens through the Lord's Supper. And the reason why is during the Lord's Supper, we, we, believe, we believe that in order to take the Lord's Supper, you must already be a believer. You must already be regenerated. In fact, we will not, I belong to a fairly conservative version of Lutheranism, where we will not even serve the Lord's Supper unless you have 100% unity with us in our faith and practice and profession of faith. Basically, accept our confession 100%. We won't serve it to you. Um, so in other words, no offense, Jason, but if you came to my church, we would not give you Lord's Supper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, uh, um, so, but however, in baptism, and I could look it up, uh, I, don't, I don't have the scripture in front of me, but the the verse where it says basically that we're buried with Christ, mm -hmm. um, and Romans. and that act of of being buried with Christ, we believe that God can work through that through that sacrament to regenerate people, and we see that repeatedly. Now, just to make clarify, we also believe strongly that the means of grace is the Word. Okay, in fact, we would say the Word is the central one, and we only believe that. The other sacraments are means of grace in so much as that God's word's connected to them. So in order to have a sacrament, you have to have God's word and you have to have a physical element. And so when you bring those two together, there and then we believe also that these things are a mystery. We don't have uh, we're not going to be able to system systematize them. We believe that there's something mysterious going on there. Make sense? Yeah, somewhat. Um, uh, Vincent, did you have any input on this? Uh, not, not 
so much. I, I've ha I have heard like you know I listen to Chris Rosebro, and I've heard some of this before, but yeah, I disagree with it, but yeah, I have heard <laughs> it before. Yeah. Um, well, uh, let, let's go back to our original question, which I wanted Vincent to weigh in a little bit on, uh, was uh, the Ordo Salutis. Where do you, Andrew, hold on with, um, do you hold that regeneration precedes faith? Mm -hmm. I believe, and I hope this is, I'd have to look back at our doctors to give you an exact answer. I can tell you from my own experience that I believe, and again, I'd have to check this doctrinally, I believe I was regenerated through my baptism at one month old. And the reason why I believe that is I cannot remember an instant where I was not a believer. And because of that, I believe I was regenerated as an infant. I do. Now, would you, would you hold that? because of that regeneration is the reason that you have faith, or let's say somebody was not baptized as an infant, do they first have to demonstrate faith and then God regenerates them, or do they, re do they believe because they have been regenerated? What, what's the ordo salutis there? Um, I, think, I think it's complicated. <laughs> and to some extent, I, I don't know if... I don't... I don't know if Scripture is 100% clear on X, then Y, then Z. Um, certainly we believe that uh, faith comes through hearing. No doubt about that. Um, but in, in the case of baptizing, like for example me, I am convinced in that I was regenerated at my point of baptism because I don't have that recollection. Now, that's subjective, I realize that, but I, I don't. And let me give you another example, Jason, real quick. Like my daughter, for example. I baptized my daughter when she was maybe a month and a half years old, a month and a half old. And a couple of months ago, it was Easter, and she goes to a Christian, or she goes to a, my church's um, daycare where they run 4K. She's she's actually five, but th uh, she just turned five. And uh, the teacher there taught her about um, the passion story. And I said, well, did you know this stuff before? And she was like, well, and this is a five-year-old. She goes, well, I've always believed in Jesus. I just didn't have all the details. And I was like, it struck me, you know, like, <laughs> like there is faith there and it was like the revelation is just filling in some blanks for her. But in her mind, she was already a believer in, in a sense. I mean, and this is a five-year-old. I mean, a five-year-old saying this. And this is not on, and I should point this out, everyone I talk to in the Lutheran Church has a very similar experience. Not every single person, but many. It, it, you know, makes sense? Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I don't, I don't deny that. Uh, my my son has, he's just a little bit younger than your daughter, has you know exhibited a lot of the, the same, the same stuff. Um, you know, my prayer is is that God saves him. Um, I I entreat God daily uh, to save my son, um, and I pray. My prayer always is to God is may He never know a day and a moment of not believing in you, that that He always trusts in Christ. Um, so I, I don't deny that God can do that. Um, 
I think here's the difference. So you say uh, your baptism regenerated you, but you also believe that you can lose that regeneration, and I think that's a fundamental where we disagree on a lot of this because if you were, if and and that's why you see according to you people you know people baptized as infants who lose their faith. Uh, I think that's why we see it completely differently in that a true profession of faith you can't you can't lose uh, once saved all the always saved so to speak. Yeah, uh, Vincent, did you want to did you want to jump in real quick? Because I had asked earlier about. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I sure see like uh, uh, John six sixty three. It's the okay. spirit that gives life. The flesh is no help at all. I mean, it, this is you see in regeneration completely and totally of the spirit, not not anything physical or or you know anything that happens to your flesh. Uh, you see that all over you. You know, spiritually dead can't please God in any way, shape, or form. You have to be, the Spirit has to make you alive first before you can have any chance of, <laughs> you know, re, I, I'm not completely well-versed in it, but, you know, the, the order I see is, you know, this, you have to be, we're spiritually dead, and, and that's where we start, so. Yeah, yeah. one of the best texts, I think, uh, that demonstrates uh, regeneration preceding uh, faith is uh, within First uh, John, and in First John uh, chapter two, uh, verse twenty-nine is the first um, is the first instance of this, and we see here uh, if any. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now I'm reading here from the ESV, um, which is the, the Greek word gagenete there. And we see then in uh, the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 9, it says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Um, uh, ekton theon, I think I'm trying to remember, uh, uh, gagenete, um, has been born out, you know, from God. And then in verse chapter 4, Verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God. Now, almost all Christians would acknowledge that we practice righteousness because we have been born of God. We, we have been regenerated. That those who have um, uh, ceased and repented from a continual practice of sinning, um, that have uh, changed a lifestyle of sinning, um, do so as a result of being of of having been past tense, having been born of God, and then also in First uh, John four verse seven, where it says um, that anyone who loves has been born of God. So we would agree that we we truly love in the way that God defines love because we have been past tense born of God. So. I'm going to go to another verse yet, but do you guys kind of all see that? Would you guys all agree with that those actions in the Christian are a result of having been born of God? 
I do. I mean, how else? Yeah. How else could you? <laughs> what, would Would you agree with that, Andrew? Also. Um, provisionally, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know where I'm going, right? <laughs> so, uh, in the very next chapter, so we see. John staying very consistent through the book here. We the, the phrase that I just gave, ekton theon gegenete, is the exact same phrase that is then used in 1 John 5, verse 1. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Um, so John is very consistent here. Uh, throughout the entire book. Now, most Arminians will take all the previous texts and they will say, oh, yes, yes, you can't do that unless you have been born again. But they don't like the, the logical conclusion of that, that in 1 John 5, 1, that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is the result of having been born of God. Any thoughts on that? Well, let me ask you guys this. Um, not to totally change the topic, but I'm very curious about this. Um, and again, like I said, I don't know that many, virtually know nobody in my personal life who's reformed. With the profession of faith part, if somebody comes to your church and says to the pastor, I want to be baptized, is that enough for the pastor to go, okay, yeah, let's do it? Or is he going to require an examination of him prior to baptism. Well, I'll tell you how it happened at, at our church, and then um, uh, I'll let Vincent jump in and, and know what his experience is in Reformed Baptist Church. But, but yeah, they, they did an interview, because I was baptized at the Reformed Baptist Church, and the reason I did that is because I believe the Bible teaches uh, immersion as the form of baptism. And when I was baptized back when I was 13 in the Mennonite church, I wasn't even a Christian. And so I had the desire to be baptized again when I went to the Reformed Baptist Church. And our pastor there encouraged me to go ahead and do that because it was something that was on my heart. But uh, they, they uh, both of the elders, um, you know, interviewed me. And, uh, you know, I asked, uh, you know, what my testimony was. And... Uh, and uh, that was that was basically it. And then about a month later, uh, six weeks later, um, they scheduled had the baptism scheduled, and I was baptized. So we we typically do some of somewhat of an examination. You know, you ask the questions, you see how you know how does the person profess faith? Do they do they exhibit a a um, a remorse uh, and a turning from their sin? Um, do they do they Profess that their their trust and faith is in Christ alone. That it's is it's His sacrifice and His work that has resulted in um, our salvation. And then when the person makes that profession that and that uh, and that claim of faith, then then we would baptize them. Uh, Vincent, you want to jump in on that? Yeah, I think uh, one of the requirements is that you know be a membership. So with that comes all. The examinations of being a member of, of the church. They're, they're not going in it blind, you know. Uh, you should have some fruit of actual regeneration of, of your faith before they'll, at least into my experience, you know. Yeah. So member, membership, and by default, because you're a member, you know, you're, you're demonstrating your 
I guess, the sincerity of your profession of your faith. Okay, oh, now I now I get it now. Now I understand why you're asking these questions because in the Lutheran Church, we don't require a... If somebody comes to the pastor and says, I want to be baptized, and that's all they have is a simple desire, and we, we assume they have a reason why they have that desire, okay? Then we don't withhold baptism from them. And the reason why is we believe God can work through that baptism to bring to the fullness uh, uh, what was started with that initial desire. Um, make sense? Now, would yeah, it does. Now, would you actually tell them that because they have been baptized, they are now saved? What saves them is their faith and their faith alone. And the point at which they have that faith, um, be it prior, reinforced through, or during, or after the baptism, is that the thing that saves them. It's faith. You know, our thing is faith alone. You know, faith alone is the means of justification. Gathered through whatever means, be it the just hearing through baptism and or the Lord's Supper. So a Lutheran would not, when somebody does come and desires simply to be baptized, you guys don't even ask, do you guys ask them to make a profession of faith, or is it they just, you guys just baptize them? If they say, I, I want to be baptized, there is a rite of baptism. Now, if it's an infant, for example, um, the parents come up with the child, and then they have what are called sponsors, which are adults that are typically friends of the parents or relatives, so forth, that come forward, and then they speak on behalf of the child, and some questions are asked about, do you, you know, basically, do you believe in... We, we okay, the other thing we're big on in the Lutheran Church is the ecumenical creeds. Are, are you familiar with the ecumenical creeds? Um, I've heard of them. Well, I, I haven't read any of them. Like, like Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed. Uh, oh, yeah, yes, yes, yeah. No. Yeah. yeah, and the Athanasian Creed. So during our worship service, we, we again, this is another part of Lutheranism, is that we, we to each other, confess that creed. So we actually speak that creed every week, one of the three. Usually it's Nicene or Apostles, because the Athanasian Creed is very long. Oh, it's like yeah. pages and pages. <laughs> I don't know if you guys do that in your worship service, but we do it every week, literally yeah. every week. You guys do it every week too, or? Uh, no, no, we don't repeat the, the creed. But I've read all those, uh, yeah. So I'm very familiar with them. And, and the reason why we do that is to show our oneness in our in our faith. We're confessing to each other. This is what we believe. Um, and uh, by the way, in our worship service, it's very there's reasons for why we do everything, and we do everything in a particular order, in a particular method, you know. I don't know how liturgical your guys' church is, but ours is extremely liturgical. Nope. I, not I we're not, we're not, we're not liturgical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we we would hold to what we call the regulative principle of worship, and I think that, Vincent, you, I, if you're a Reformed Baptist, you would probably yeah. do that. What does that mean? Well, with the regulative principle of worship, what we what the that principle would say is that we do not go beyond Scripture for how we ought to worship God. So, 
we we worship God in the way that He says to be worshipped, not in the, maybe the way that we feel like worshiping Him. Uh, so we um, uh, some some forms of regulative principle will like for example in our church we we uh, we have piano and we sing hymns uh, and uh, we have a very a very formalized. Uh, You're not Psalter only, are you? No, no, no we're not Psalter only. <laughs> Uh, I, is that is that how your church is then too? No, no, no we're not. We're, we we do psalms too. I mean hymns too. Hymns, yeah, yeah. We we use uh, what's the name of the hymn? We don't use the Trinity hymn book, but uh, we um, just you know we just sing from a from a hymn book. But we have uh, a piano accompaniment. But um, but we do have a more formal uh, service than what most uh, churches uh, would do. And uh, that it would be based upon what we call the regulative principle of worship. Okay. So are there particular things like do you make a uh, confession of sins and an absolution? No, no. See now, why? That's the part I don't I don't understand. Why would you want to confess your sins? Well, we would do that to one another yeah. and to God first. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. Where where do you see this as a part of the worship service scripturally? I mean, yeah. Oh, scripturally. Well, we would agree that confession and an absolution is central to Christian life. I mean, we're constantly confessing and repenting of our sins, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. I just I I don't uh, I don't see that defined, and this is where the regulative principle of worship would come in. We don't see that defined as, uh, you know, we do confess our sins one to another, as it tells us to do in what Galatians chapter six, um, and we obviously confess our sins to God, First uh, John one nine, um, and so that is something that we do all the time. But when it comes to a formalized uh, liturgical uh, method within the worship service that that is not something that we do but we don't uh, and this like I said comes from the regulative principle of worship we we uh, tend to not uh, go beyond uh, I mean kind of our principles not to go beyond what is written so if it's not there in scripture uh, defined as you know the scripture lays out the Lord's Supper um, so we we practice the Lord's Supper uh, we, we do it uh, our church does it twice a month um, I would have no problem with doing it even more often than that, but uh, we do do it twice a month, and uh, so so that's that's the principle that uh, that we follow. Uh, Luther, I think this goes all the way back to the Reformation because uh, there was there was two different views. Luther had the position that anything is permissible unless it is not explicitly denied in Scripture, and the reformers, the other reformers like Zwingli and Calvin. And Knox went more the other way that uh, we don't practice anything unless it's specifically de uh, defined in Scripture. Uh, so that was kind of the two different views. Um, so Luther approached it from the perspective: if if the Scripture doesn't say that you shouldn't do it, then um, then it is permissible. And the reformers went from the other direction. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Um, but. Going back to my, uh, real quick, I didn't mean to get you off on that rabbit trail, um, on the baptism thing, the you asked about the, I forget what you asked about, you asked about the simple desire, right? Um, 
I, I, I can't remember. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, when, where you said that you would baptize just if uh, somebody said that they desired to, to be baptized, then I ask you if you if you guys give them an affirmation of the fact that they are saved because of that baptism. Oh, right, right, right. And do so, they have to profess do they have to profess faith at that point? Yeah, so if they're an adult or they can speak for themselves, we there's a rite of baptism in our hymn book and then in there they would they would confess things that are similar to an basically similar to the ecumenical creed. Um, do they believe in Jesus Christ? In other words, do they believe in the Trinity? Do they believe Jesus Christ was God in flesh? You know, those sorts of general principles, general doctrinal statements. And then they would, and then the pastor would ask them, "Are do you desire to be baptized?" The person would say, "Of course, yes." And then the pastor would go ahead and, you know. Uh, perform the baptism, and by the way, we do use sprinkling, although we are not against using full immersion. We just don't believe there's a, a scriptural mandate on how much water has to be present. Um, and therefore, uh, at that point, he would baptize in the name of the Trinity. You know, he would say, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and and then that person, that would be it. You know, and then there's some other parts in, in the actual what we call right of, of baptism, but that's what would happen. So if they can speak for themselves, we would require them, they would profess as part of the right um, essential Christian doctrine, and that would be what would, uh, would be asked of them to profess in front of everybody, but, and that would be it. Make sense? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think... I. Yeah, from a Reformed Baptist posi uh, position, and I think even uh, uh, most Presbyterians uh, that would, because uh, they baptize upon confession of faith also, we do uh, probably more than what you guys do uh, require uh, some more uh, proof of. Let, let me ask you this uh, question. Do, For example, let's say somebody's living in blatant sin. Uh, let's say they're in a homosexual relationship, or maybe they're in a um, uh, in a relationship with a person that they're uh, living together, but they're unmarried, um, or they're engaging some other gross sin that's very obvious that they have not repented of. In the Lutheran Church, if somebody desires baptism, would you guys still baptize them? Very good question. Extremely good question. Um, I don't know. Let me get back to you before our podcast. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, see, now to to me that would be a concerning thing because that would say that uh, that repentance is not something that is required uh, re required of God uh, with with uh, you know with uh, confession and and faith in Christ that that does not involve repentance because true faith always uh, results in repentance um, because once again they've been regenerated. Um, Actually, jumping back, what did you think of the the text I read in First John, and then resulting in five one, saying that regeneration precedes uh, believing in Jesus as the Christ is because we have been gegenite, we have been born of God. Is that is do you see any inconsistency there? Are we uh, do we have scriptural basis for regeneration preceding faith? Well. 
Yeah. Okay. Let. I'm trying to remember the exact verse, but remember. I'm going to give you a, a counter verse. Okay. Remember Peter's um, uh, sermon. I think it's in Acts two. Okay. Is that the right chapter? I can't remember. I don't have a Bible in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. I think and, it's chapter two. And he he does a sermon, and they are uh, the people are contrite, right? They they realize that they've been sinful. Um, in fact, I believe. Am I remembering this right? But he actually accuses them of being the ones who actually killed Christ themselves, right? In yeah. that sermon? Yeah. And then do they ask him, I don't have a Bible in front of me, do they ask him, um, what shall we do to be saved? Yes, they do, and I'm trying to find the text right now. And And his answer, I believe, is believe in God or believe in Jesus Christ and be baptized. He doesn't say or or before or he doesn't give any um, he doesn't give an order there. He just says both. Do this and this, not this then this or this then do this. He says this and this, right? Yeah. It says it says uh, in verse uh, thirty eight. It says and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Uh, so I think that's the text that you're referring to. Yeah, and I would call that a critical text. Well, that, that shows that they were called beforehand. Uh, I mean, that, that right there. Yeah. And, and notice it says for the children, too, and that's where we're getting into, um, you know, Baptize the whole household. Don't just baptize those who make well, old yeah, to make. Well, a let me, my Presbyterian friends use this all the time. Yeah, and I and I've addressed this, so I'll actually just finish reading the verse because I thought you were going to go there, <laughs> so I know how to w deal with this because <laughs> I've dealt with this before. So if you just keep on going, it says, "For the promises to you and your children, and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord, our God, calls to Himself." And then it says, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So uh, what, what Peter is simply saying is that... Um, the do you remember back in the Gospels when they were chanting the the Jews were chanting, uh, saying His blood upon us and our children, right? Yes. Okay. So what Peter is addressing here is they had pronounced a curse upon themselves, saying that they they and their uh, the, their children would be cursed. And what Peter is simply saying here, the promise of the gospel here, that for all those who believe, and all those who repent and are baptized, if you believe, repent, and are baptized, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you will be saved. And this promise is for you and for your children. He's addressing the curse they had called upon themselves and saying that just because you did this does not mean that if you repent and you believe and you trust in Christ that you won't be saved. But then just down a verse a little bit further, it says, and those who received his word were baptized. Infants can't receive his word, so I don't believe any infants were baptized in uh, Acts chapter 2. 
Okay, then... Yeah, go ahead. Not to give a big thing about infant baptism, but I believe there's another point in Acts where... Uh, what's his name? He was a Roman... Cornelius? Yes. Yeah. And he... It doesn't indicate that his whole household was baptized? Well, it, it, it says, yeah, but... Can you First, prove that there's infants there, though? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's the that's the point. And actually, Vincent has a really good uh, point there. Is that I've heard the household baptism. There's an example of three household bapt, or is it just two? I think there's three household baptisms uh, represented in the Book of Acts. And um, in in for example, in the the one of Cornelius, and I have to find the text here, but it says, and all those. Re- uh, in the house, rejoiced in his household, rejoiced with him because he had believed. So, in the context of that of that text, it it says that all of them were rejoicing in his faith. Now, that would not have involved infants because infants would not have rejoiced because they would not have understood. Um, so, I I believe it's an assumption. Uh, it's an unverified assumption to say that the household baptism involved infants. I believe that God was very gracious and saved everyone in the house and all in the house actually believed. And we still see that happen today sometimes. We see entire families coming to know the Lord and and believe and trust in Him. Um, But I believe God was very gracious uh, here uh, when the gospel was first going out and he was saving sometimes entire families, and which is why we see several examples of entire households being baptized. But it's assert, it's inserting an assumption in there that there were actually infants in those households because that the text doesn't say that there was. Okay, so then I got one final thing, uh, and then we'll save this. I don't want to blow all this good conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, as a type and shadow of, of baptism, we believe that circumcision was a, as a type and shadow in the Old Testament of baptism to come. Mm-hmm. Do you guys affirm that or, or not? Do you believe that that was a type and shadow of, and that there was full fulfillment in, uh... I believe that was a type and shadow of the circumcision of the heart. Not a type and shadow of, of, uh, of baptism. And the, what, what, when, when my pedo Baptist friends uh, hold to that, my question always is for them: Is do you baptize your infants on the eighth day, and do you only baptize men, male ch- children? And and my answer to that would be no, because the type, um, the type is always confined and um, is always. To, to be a type, an Old Testament type, it has to be confined, and it has to be, um, it's usually not universal. So in other words, what we see are various types in the Old Testament that are confined, and then in the New Testament they explode out uh, more universally. So you have something that's confined to a, 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 I don't know if that makes sense, but I can give you another example. Um to take for example that originally the the God's people were just Israel, right? And we see in the New Testament it explodes out to all nations, um, and you see this repeatedly with the types that they that they find adopted into Israel. Not they're yeah. still Israel. We're just no, no. But right, but the gospel moved out. God was working through a particular group in the Old Testament to bring about his plan of salvation. 
then as you can see it, it explodes out. Oh, so you, you have this, you always have this conf confinement of the type and then it's full fulfillment and full explosion in, in the New Testament. You, you see I that pattern. Israel, I think Israel was a, a beacon for salvation in the Old Testament and I, I think to Israel now that we're we're Israel now in the same exact setup. Yeah. Um, the the question I would have for you, Andy, um, is where in the New Testament do any of the apostles or writers in the New Testament correlate circumcision to baptism? I I have to get back to you on that one. I I, I um. There's, I know there's a place. I just don't have it right on the top of my head. Be yeah. I mean, you've definitely heard that this is a type and shadow of baptism, and I don't think they came out of nowhere. Um, no, I think there's some basis for it. Yeah, I, 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 I've, I obviously have heard that. Um, there, there's no doubt about that. I just, I don't think there's really a scriptural grounding for it. I, I in, in Deuteronomy, it talks about. That I will. Uh, what's the passage? Let me um, let me actually find it here. It's uh... going back. Do you guys af so? Do you guys do not affirm that types were always confined and then exploded out? Like for example, you another example when um, when you would do the Yom Kippur, the atonement, right? The atonement was always confined to. Um, just the people that were living in Israel. It could be believers or non-Jewish people that were living in Israel. But when they were performing the Yom Kippur, that didn't atone for everybody throughout all a universal... Uh, it wasn't for all nations. It was for a specific nation. And then you see in the New Testament that um, Jesus' sacrifice is for all nations. Now, I, forget about the limited atonement thing. By nations here, I'm talking about people that are not genetically Jewish and living in a particular land. So you get this explosion. Well, I, I would respond to you because I believe in limited atonement, it definitely applies here, is that that definitely was a type, but I don't believe it exploded. Um, in Yom Kippur, um, the, the type was a sacrifice was done for God's people, Israel. And in the same way, Jesus' sacrifice was made only for true Israel, his church, and only for his people. And so I believe there is a direct correlation. The correlation is, is, that, is that the atonement in the Old Testament was made specifically for the ethnic people of God, and that was a type and shadow of Christ's sacrifice, who was specifically for the spiritual people of God, um, which okay, is so true Israel. So this is interesting. So in Reformed theology, you do not assert, you actually in some ways reject the notion that there's types that are, are foreshadowing and then they explode out. You don't, you don't affirm that. In every case, you believe that they were limited or confined and they maintain that confinement in both scenarios. Well, let me let me ask you just on this particular scenario here. Um, the atonement was it made only for Israel, who are called the people of God, right? Yeah, it, it could also refer to people that were non-genetically Jewish, but happened to be living in the land, or but they had um, to become Jews. Yeah, they had to. They they 
the, for example, there there might have been people that were taken um, during uh, captivity, and and then through warring or whatever, and then they they became servants or whatever in 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 Israel. Those people would have been covered by um, if they were believers. They would have been covered by Yom Kippur. Well, they would have had to become Jewish proselytes. They would have had to be in, become Jews. They could go through a rite and become a Jew. Um, but it, the atonement there was only made for the people of God. And I believe in exactly the same way the atonement of Christ was only made for the people of God. So I see a direct yeah. correlation. Okay. I would say in how you become a, like Galatians 3.7, you are, you are of Abraham's seed you know, by faith now. That that's what's different in the New Testament versus the old. Yeah, I, I would I would go to this is what I see as circumcision in Deuteronomy thirty verse six. It says, "And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might." And Paul talks about circumcision in Galatians uh, uh, in the same way, um, and so. I believe circumcision is a type of of God uh, circumcising the heart, and I believe that's where the correlation resolves. And I believe it has more of a direct correlation to regeneration than it does baptism. Uh, what are your thoughts, Vincent, on that? Sorry, back and forth. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I, I, I agree. I think. Uh, Like I said, I, like you said, I, I really think it's always been limited to God's chosen people, and I think the biggest difference is how we become chosen. I mean, the uh, the the chosen the people in the from Christ onward or His elect, still chosen completely by God, but it, it's it directly by faith, and uh, you you know it opens it up. Far wider, indeed, by you know all who come in faith. Uh, but I guess the means of how you come to that faith is where we we disagree uh, on some aspects of it. With with with, let's say the Lutherans. Uh, well, let me well, ask let me this: ask Is okay? Is God's word? Part and active in baptism. What What do you mean? Clarify. Um, okay. In Lutheranism, we define a sacrament as something that has a physical element plus God's word. So, in other words, you can't have a baptism absent God's word. You know, Scripture is is preached during a baptism. Okay. So you, you can't detach the two. If you just if you get rid of God's word, all you have is simple water. Okay? So you need both there. So would you affirm that during a baptism God's word is living and active? See what mm. I'm saying? I mean it I, I believe that God's word, for example, never returns void. I believe it always accomplishes the purpose for which God intends it to accomplish. Um, I don't believe that God's word is some sort of a, 
a substance kind of floating around. Uh, I, I believe it's it's uh, uh, the word of God. It's 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 what we read in the sixty six books, and so we proclaim that. Um, but I don't I don't understand it. Kind of uh, are, are you kind of describing it as some sort of a substance that is there? No, I, what I'm saying is is that. In order to have a baptism, for example, I don't know exactly what you say when you baptize, when you actually baptize people. We baptize them three times, and in the name of the Trinity, you know, that we speak the name of the Trinity, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in that sense, um, because you're using those words, you are invoking God's word. And the two are working together at the same time, the word with the water. So in other words, if you just dunk the person three times and you don't say anything, um, then it's just like, you know, me taking a bath. You see what I'm saying? You you need God's word involved there in order to, uh, so that it becomes a baptism versus something else. See what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I I would agree with that part. Um, that that I mean, what distinguishes a baptism? I mean, for for example, we would say that uh, you know we first give a confession of faith. We we profess our faith to those that are there witnessing it, and then we say that upon your confession of faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is um, you know obviously a quote from Matthew twenty eight. Uh, so is the Word of God present? there in the fact that you verbalized it uh, yeah um, you know I think all those elements need to be there in order for it to be a true baptism there needs to be witnesses there needs to be um, there needs to be a, a, I think a confession of faith and a, a baptism in the name of the because that's what Jesus told us to do to baptize in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit so I believe those all those elements come together to make it a true baptism it, it, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question but no so I so I think we're agreeing then I think to have a baptism God's word has to be proclaimed to use your language proclaimed in order for it to be a baptism so if faith comes through hearing and hearing comes through the Word of God, and the Word of God is present during a baptism, I think maybe we're not disagreeing as much as we think we are. It it could be, but I don't think just the words of God on their own uh, produce salvation, uh, results in justification or regeneration. It, it, it there is several acts, you know, aspects of it. There is the the proclamation of the word of God, there is the reception of that into the the regenerated heart, and then that heart per, uh, has a, a true faith from God that results in justification. So the, the word of God on its own, just kind of hanging there, uh, is not is is one is one element, is one aspect of of the um, you know the entire process. Uh, I I don't think I. I think you guys look at the Word of God, um, a little bit more like kind of kind of a substance and its presence, because it's there. Um, uh, it has some sort of an effect. 
I, I, I believe in this way, I, I believe that the word of God never returns void, but this is the way that I look at that. I look at that as being that God always accomplishes his purpose with the proclamation of his word. So his, his purpose may be to, to, uh, uh, to judge a particular individual uh, for his rejection of his word. And so he desires that to be proclaimed so that their willful rejection of it is, uh, is that which he can use to, to judge that person and ultimately for his glory. And at the same time, uh, for those whom he has called, uh, that, that word goes forth to be received within the heart that has been changed. And so it always has a purpose. So that, that's kind of how I look at it. I, I'm, I, think we're, I think we're a little bit ships kind of passing in the dark here. We kind of have different views of what the Word of God is actually there and its purpose is. So, yeah, so we would say God's Word is there, well, a couple things. Um, we believe God's Word is a means of grace, and therefore, and we believe that God's Word creates, the Holy Spirit uses that as a means to create faith. So, and we would use the terms, you know, God's Word is living and active. In other words, when it's proclaimed, it's working on you. It's working on your heart. It's working in, in your mind, et cetera, et cetera. And then we would say the same thing about baptism and, and taking the Lord's Supper is that when you do those things, it works on you. It's, it's, it's active. It's not just this passive thing. I, I think, I mean, at that point, you're a, you're, you're, that's, that's after salvation, not before, though. I agree. I agree. Yeah. But but God's word is working on you. So when okay, let me well, give it maybe, to you. Maybe in, in sanctification, but not justification. Well, I would I say it's see. even working on you beforehand. So before it's even works on the unbeliever. So when we preach, okay. So this is one thing we should say for the well, podcast. Well, I'm, I'm talking about the Lord's Supper and baptism. I mean, you're gonna are you gonna do you give that to non-believers? No, no. So those things are working. They still work on you, but they're working to bolster your faith. So that's when what you, I'm saying. That's just that's a just a sanctification at that point, not yeah. justification. Right. So, but we believe that God's word works even on the unbeliever. So when we deliver God's word, for example. One thing I really want to talk to you about, let's save this for the podcast, is covenantal theology, because there's a bunch of stuff I don't understand about this. Okay. But in Lutheranism, we, we, we draw a sharp distinction between law and gospel. We believe that God's Word is always preaching law or it's always preaching gospel, right? Mm -hmm. So even for the unbeliever, we believe that when we preach God's law, it works on them. It's cutting, it's hitting them in the heart. And it's starting to to work on their you know, working on them to get them to to realize that they're a sinful human being in need of a savior. That that proclamation of God is a means. The word is working on them. It's living and active. It's a means by which then they would come to faith. Make sense? Yeah, I mean, I I would look at it more this way. I think I think this quote is from I need to actually look this up. I thought it was Luther himself, but the same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay, and so that's the way that I look at the Word of God. Uh, the Word of God, if uh, among on the unregenerate heart, 
um, is only going to uh, cause him to usually rebel even more uh, against God. Uh, but on the regenerate heart, it is what... So I, I believe it, that that's the way that I think it always works. Now, you said the, you know, it, it'll cut unbelievers to the heart. Yeah, you know, I, I believe it does, but what will result in the unregenerate heart when uh, the Word of God uh, strikes their conscience and and they recognize that uh, that this what they've because they'll they'll recognize that what they've done is wrong. They'll either fall into some form of self righteousness in order to justify themselves, or they'll just harden themselves against God. Both are are, are acts of being uh, of hardening yourself. Only the unregenerate or only the regenerate will take that word in, allow it to work within their heart, and bring it forth in as a confession of faith in Christ alone because they find no righteousness in themselves. Uh, that, okay. Yeah, go ahead. That's very interesting. So going back to Acts 2, we see that, that Peter is preaching what we would call, when he starts preaching the law, it says that they were cut to the quick, right, or, or something like that. So what it's doing is it's creating, um, it's essentially creating guilt, and it's creating fear, uh, fear of God's wrath. And then we believe then then that is forcing repentance, or you know God's word when preached correctly will, you'll recognize your sin, and then you'll realize that your need is for a savior. So then that's when we give the gospel. So when you say I believe that is how an unbeliever can come to faith: is that they reckon that God's word hits them, it works on them, it works on their heart, it has them realize that they're sinful and that they need a savior, and then the gospel's proclaimed as the solution. You see, but that only to in our view, it only happens to the elect. Yeah. I mean, we believe people are struck to the heart, but. Uh, I mean, even un unbelievers will be, but uh, they will just further reject. I'm actually looking. There is another text, and um, I was thinking it was at the end of Stephen's sermon where it says they were struck to the heart, but they, uh, but maybe it was Jesus when he was speaking to some of the Pharisees. I'm not seeing it here in Acts chapter 7, um, where they were struck to the heart by what he said, but it only angered them. Um, so we see different reactions to the word of God striking the heart. We see in Acts chapter 2, we see many of them coming forth in repentance as a result of that. But in other examples, um, and I'm trying to find that other example, I think it was Jesus when he was speaking to the Pharisees at some point. I need to find it here. So that would go to like uh, my assertion that God's word is living. It, when it's proclaimed, it becomes living and active, and it, and it actually divides, right? It'll divide out. Would you even assert it's kind of a filtering mechanism? Well, I, I mean, I, I believe it says uh, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, striking to the uh, uh, joints and marrows to the the heart. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I mean, I believe that the word of God does that to to really everyone. When I go out and I witness on the street, I see people struck to the heart all the time. But I don't always see repentance and faith. Um, it it can people will respond differently to the word of God. I believe it's always powerful. I believe it God it always accomplishes God's intention. 
but uh, I don't believe that it always results in repentance and faith. Oh, I wouldn't assert that it. We would not. I wouldn't assert that it always does either. Um, I'm just asserting that it, it's. Do you have an issue with the terms living and active or not? No. Okay. No, All right. I, I, I thought. Okay. Now I get it. All right. I I got it now. That was kind of what I was trying to get at. Is that you were saying it's kind of like a substance, or we kind of think of it as a substance, and it's. I, I've never heard it described that way in in my tradition as a substance. We we just talk about it as being living and active. You know yeah. that it, it it works. It's when it's dished out, when it's preached, it it has an effect. It's it just isn't. Um, it's moving. <laughs> I think it has an effect, but it has an effect both ways. You know, some are saved, some are hardened. I mean, it's, it effect. It doesn't come back. You know, completely void. It does it, what it accomplishes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, bringing that back to baptism, real quick. My only point was that when you say can baptism create faith or create regeneration, well, if the word is present there then you you have some you have some act and it's living and active working with the substance that is the physical element then I don't know that we're disagreeing that much because God's word God's word is there and present doing its work yeah I mean I I don't think that we have really a disagreement. I think we sometimes use a little bit different language, uh, but I don't know that we have a disagreement when it comes to God's Word as being a means of grace. Uh, I don't, uh, I don't, Vincent, would you have an objection to that usage? I don't really. Not at all. I mean, God uses the means of preaching to have no, no issue with that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, uh, uh, it is 12.30, no, 12.41 here in <laughs> Florida, and i I, I got to get to work in the morning, so, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I'm, okay. I, I, I'm, I'm going to think I'm going to uh, go ahead and stop the broadcast here, but hey, this has been a, a really good discussion. I've really enjoyed this. Um, I think what we need to do is, uh, Andrew, uh, we can, uh, if you, if you want to kind of, because I'll, I'll probably, uh, in our podcast when we discuss this, I'll, I'll probably uh, be asking you some of those questions I asked you early on. So if you can kind of think about some of those and uh, see what, uh, what your answer would be on, on some of those. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, maybe we can, uh, you know, iron sharpens iron. You can help me kind of understand a little bit more of uh, your, your, your Lutheran perspective. And uh, I can... I can um, I can show you the reformed and biblical perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a bunch of stuff <laughs> I, I want to ask about. A joke there, so. <laughs> <laughs> he snuck that one in. I snuck that one in. Kind of got away with it. So. There's a bunch of stuff I really would like to. I don't know if you subscribe to covenantal theology, but there's a, yeah. a bunch of stuff I really don't understand about it. Um, I'd really like to understand it better. Maybe we can make that part of it because. I really, I'm struggling with certain parts when I read up on it. I can't really figure out what the difference between it is and just a law gospel distinction and 
what the differences are between it and a law-gospel distinction. Because in Lutheranism, it's all about law-gospel distinction. Yeah. Uh, what? And, and I'm no expert on covenant theology. Now, I, I do. I am. I would hold to baptismic covenant theology, and that would be uh, distinguished between paedo-baptismic covenant theology. We we hold to a little bit different view of the the covenants, and we can we can talk about that. It, but if you are interested. In, in reading about covenant theology, um, one of the, the best books that, I, and, and so since, since I'm a Reformed Baptist, uh, this would be the ones that I would recommend. My, my Presbyterian brothers would, would give you different books, but uh, I, I really loved this book by uh, Pascal Denault, The Distinctiveness of uh, uh, Baptist, Baptist Covenant Theology, and it, okay. it uh, makes the distinguishment, uh, and, and it uses a lot of stuff from Owen, but this is just a well-researched book, phenomenally well-researched book. It uh, goes back to the particular Baptists of, uh, uh, in, in England and also John, has a lot of stuff from John Owen, who I think was an inconsistent paedo-baptist. He, he really held to the, Bap, the Baptist uh, covenant theology view, but still, for some reason, held to paedo-baptism. Uh, but another book also is Greg Nichols' uh, uh, covenant theology uh, book. So if you want to read those, uh, th those would be some good resources there too. Now I'll do my best. I, I am no expert on covenant theology, but I'll, I'll do my best from at least my understanding and what I believe. Uh, and I don't know if uh, uh, Vincent, if you have uh, uh, a lot of insight on that or not. But I mean, To a degree. I will say stay away from New, new Covenant Theology and yeah. I think the the biggest difference between our the Presbyterian brothers and sisters and and the Baptists is, is the means in which you are, you know, uh, yeah, brought into the covenant and so that that's, that's one of the differences. One of the, one of the main differences that we mostly that's probably what I, I hear most people arguing on. So, and, and I I I would also jump in there and say, and I don't know what. How you studied this, Vincent? But I, I would, as a as holding to Baptist covenant theology, I would not hold to um, the covenant of grace under two separate administrations. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and they bring in the the visible church versus the invisible church, and it gets. It yeah, gets you guys are going to unpack all of this for me because I'll tell you this: when I I growing up in the Lutheran church, we emphasize that scripture is to be interpreted through a law-gospel lens, everything. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that. You yeah, I am. With that. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, I am. It, and so I'm, and up until like maybe two years ago, I never even heard of covenant theology. I, I never had any experience with it at all. And I certainly had to understand covenants. We talk about covenants and, and, you know, the different covenants, but not as a lens to view scripture through it. You know, we just... We view scripture. I, I don't know if it's a more primitive view of. It Even sounds like it's a more primitive way of looking at scripture through this law gospel. This Old Testament and New Testament, and really the Testament is covenants. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. The old covenant, so, the new covenant. Does it encompass law gospel, or is it is it a superset of law gospel? Well, we we would summarize law gospel with these two words. We call it a covenant of works and covenant of grace. So you're either in one of two covenants. Uh, you're either in the covenant of works or in the covenant of grace. If you're under the covenant of works, you will be condemned because everyone who does not keep the whole law is, uh, or keep even one aspect of the law, 
is is condemned by the whole law. And so no one except Jesus has actually kept the covenant of works. And that is, um, you know, perfectly obeyed God's law. So you're either in one of those two covenants. Either you're within God's covenant of grace, justification by faith, uh, or you are in the covenant of works. And with that, you have to uh, perfectly obey God's law in order to uh, be saved. And so that, so that would kind of correlate with law and gospel, uh, but that is... That is the fundamental groundwork to covenant theology. Okay, and we would just call that a, a theology of works. In Lutheranism, I've always heard that called just theology of works or works righteousness versus a faith-based uh, yeah. theology. That I, and we've sure never used the terms covenant of works, covenant. I've never heard those terms. I, I think a lot of it is just semantics. You probably a lot of people just don't understand the terminology that's being thrown around, but probably agree with a lot of the underlying doctrines of it. So yeah, the one thing I still think I could be wrong in. I don't. I know you want to get going, Jason, real quick. Is that I really want to understand if it's a superset of law gospel the law gospel lens, or if it's or if it's a Venn diagram. In other words, it's a portion of that and something else. I don't understand how it relates to how we view and interpret scripture because. We interpret all scripture as either law or gospel. We're always viewing it through that lens. And I don't know if it's that's one part of it for covenant theology, and it's a bigger set too, or or what? That's the piece I'm missing. So I don't I don't think it's a quick answer for that kind of. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's something that's going to take a little bit more to develop. Uh, and uh, I would have to. Um, I, I I will tell you this: covenant theology is a very robust. Um, uh, it, it's not. It's not. You, how would I say it? It's not just simplified easily into a, a couple sentences. It's, yeah, it's not. A, it's not a single simple doctrine, though. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Could we talk about that at the podcast? Because I'd really like yeah. to understand it better. Yeah. Um, especially in the view, because I because law gospel distinction is very simple, although when it comes to practice and really dividing it when you're reading a passage and really understanding is it being preached law or is gospel that's where complexities come in but the concept is simple you know? yeah yeah yep yeah we can do that let's let's uh let's plan on that so okay well thanks guys for joining right, guys. in and yep. uh uh have you guys have a great rest of your evening and god bless we'll uh we'll see you guys uh some other weekend <laughs> okay cool god bless you guys. okay That the unjust will not inherit God's kingdom. And through Adam's offense, condemnation came to man. And so.